had this amazing, like I said earlier, amazing goosebumps moment where I really just felt Dante's love, you know? Oh, yeah. I really just felt like a friend is giving me this massive gift. Hello. In today's recording, Claire and I will be talking about Dante's Paradiso. To start with a quote of the day, Marcel Proust, he wrote, The true paradises are the paradises we have lost. This is a sentiment that really echoes with me, and I think much of what we find in the Paradiso when we remember that it's written from a position of exile. And for more on this and lots of other moments and observations, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. Uh, Paradiso is notoriously difficult to read, mm-hmm. but we can definitely offer one suggestion on how to heighten your experience with this book. Go to the top of a mountain, 10,000 feet at least, you know, far away from the city, and read it while stargazing. Well, not while stargazing. <laughs> Over a two-week period that is punctuated with stargazing. Yeah, that's highly recommended. <laughs> this helped, didn't it? Oh, Yeah. We, we went up to Brinehead in Utah, and the elevation is 10,000, and the sky is incredibly dark at Cedar Breaks. And we saw all these meteors, and they were, they literally made us exclaim <laughs> yeah. as they happened. They were that shocking. There was one that was so big, and it could have been like a close-by airplane that just came down, crashing towards the Earth. And so bright. So bright. It was went from yellow to red. Remember that? Maybe four seconds, which is a long time for a shooting. Lasted a long time. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and dozens of other little tiny ones. Yeah. And we took our telescope up there and we saw Saturn. You could see Saturn's rings and Jupiter and... There's this glorious copper crescent moon. Yeah. That was hanging in the pine trees. How did this help? dispel some of the difficulties. First of all, what are some of the difficulties that this section of the poem presents that are not a problem earlier? Well, Inferno, the Inferno is uh, very eventful and full of gory details, very vivid. And then Purgatory is gorgeously, I mean, the way Purgatory ends, it's just, it's so, um, I am thinking of that painting by Matisse, I can't remember what it's called, but those naked women dancing. In a circle. It's so bright and so many colors, yeah. literally a lot of colors, red and green and... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least those two. <laughs> just kidding. You. But... And Beatrice is just so unexpected and complicated and it's not just exhilarating. The of, it's not just the end of Purgatory. The whole Purgatory is so oh, yeah. human and surprising and wonderfully about art and... Oh, yeah. Virgil couldn't be more charming, and the whole stacious bit. It's just, it's, every canto is great. Yeah, it's full of delights. And then we get to the Paradiso, and it's like, it's so spare. It's, you know, just like looking out at a, at the night sky with the, and the stars aren't very visible for a while. You know what I mean? You know, you're looking at something great, probably, but you just can't see it. Well, the, I mean, if you think about space and the cosmos, I mean, it is it's this weird, con- I don't know, paradox. 
glorious on one hand, more sublime than what the earth has to offer, but also slightly maybe monotonous or monochrome. It's like another star, another star, another planet, another desolate. planet. I wouldn't say desolate. There are people galore that come and see him. Well, but I was talking just, about space. Yeah. But actually, I think the main obstacle is that it's much more pedantic and lectury. Everybody in Paradiso speaks like they're giving a university lecture. Yeah. Some, yeah. You know, like they're they're defending their dissertation. I know. It's It seems like Dante went through like his notebooks and compiled all of his favorite ideas he was trying to make sense of. Too many theological seminars. Yeah. People reading this for the first time should expect a few speed bumps and boring bits, but there are boring bits in all great books. Yeah. And if you get through some of those boring bits, it has moments, it has many moments that are as good, maybe better than anything in Purgatory or the Inferno, I, I think. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ending of the poem, which we'll get to, you know, the end of our discussion is as climactic as this whole book deserves, I would say. Mm. But you really loved Purgatory. I mean, you were swooning for days. You were kind of riding a <laughs> high. You still haven't really stopped. I know. You're painting Dante. I know. Dreaming I'm li- Dante. Literally painting, doing a painting of Dante. Um, Take 30 seconds and try to articulate what it is about this poem that has spoken to you so much. Purgatory? No, just the Divine Comedy in general. Oh, You're Dante's I'm... biggest fan. <laughs> I know. It's weird because it's not like I'm constantly delighted as I'm reading it, you know, nonstop delighted. It's hard to read. It is. It's. It takes work. Then sometimes, of course, you get to a great bit and you're just cruising through it and letting go of the wheel. (laughs) I guess the reason why I've connected so much to it and I'm just, I've been sort of half half drunk on Dante for the past few weeks is uh, because I just recognize myself in the book. It's, It's 700 years old, more than 700 years old, and it's me. It's uh, not to sound narcissistic. <laughs> well, every reader, I think every good reader is narcissistic. Why Why else read? Yeah, I you take that. To, you read to find yourself. Yeah, I take that comment back. It's not about narcissism, but yeah, I, I recognize myself in it. And it's not one of those things where it's like, wow, I can't believe I can relate to this book, even though it's old. But the time has nothing to do with it. It's, mm-hmm. it's It exists in the present. It's just present. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I recognize myself in Dante in the way that he is completely led by desire. Mm. And I, I've been really uplifted by all the different ways in which desire is being turned around and portrayed as a beautiful thing. Yeah, divine. Divine. Necessary. Completely necessary. It's a commandment, <laughs> basically. Yeah. For happiness and peace and, and everything good. I mean, yeah. there's I, there's no word I can think of in the book that comes up more than desire. Especially paradise. Yes. It's almost on every page. Yeah. Which we'll get to. I'm having a quite a profound experience with Dante this time, too. I've read it a few times, and I've always loved it. I've always been in awe of it. I've always admired it and been delighted by it. This time, I'm recognizing it as something. I was trying to articulate this to you the other day, and I'm not sure I'll be able to do a great job here. It's not that I've under. It's not that I understand it more now. In fact, I think I understand it less. It, it's more mysterious and enigmatic to me than ever. Mm. But that just makes it even more profound and transcendent to me. I, I'm experiencing it this time as a kind of um, as food that my soul desperately needs. 
And didn't know it needed. <laughs> and as a well that will, I, I know I can't access the depths of now, but will be nourishing me the rest of my life. You know, it's a spiritual thing now. Before it was like academic and aesthetic and, wow, what a great poet and what a great accomplishment. And like looking at a cathedral through the eyes of, I don't know, like a, an architect or something like, wow, look at this amazing accomplishment and th look at this buttress and this arch and this gargoyle. And who could have believed that a human could do that? Now I feel like I'm a, one of the congregation in the pews kind of weeping during mass. It's speaking to my soul, not just my mind. Mm. That's what it is this time. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful, as with a lot of the books we've read for the podcast, that I've waited till my mid-30s. I think I was, I was ready for this. If I had read it earlier, I'm sure, I, like you, I would have gotten lots out of it. I would have admired it in many ways, but, mm. but maybe I wouldn't have found a kindred spirit. Right. Midway through the journey of our life. Exactly. You raised the issue of desire. It's desire that gets Dante through the flames of purgatory. Mm -hmm. Desire for Beatrice. We didn't mention in our purgatory recording something that we should have, these two rivers that he gets dunked in, Lethe and Eunoia. Oh, yeah. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that last one. Lethe is the river that makes him forget his sins. Matilda is the woman that dunks him in, I think, Lethe. Mm -hmm. Do we want to spend 30 seconds poking at the question, is it good to forget your sins? Why is this part of the book? What are we, what are we being taught here about life? He gets dunked in Lethe to forget his sins. And then Eunoia is the river he gets dunked in so that his memories of the good deeds he's done in his life get magnified and strengthened. Hmm. So it strikes me as slightly strange that a person should forget their sins. I mean, they teach you things. Mistakes that you make teach you things. Shouldn't we hold on to them and their lessons? Any thoughts about this? Why is this a, an important baptism on his way up? I don't look at it as a, as a teaching about how we need to, what we need to do, you know, cleanse ourselves of sin. I rather I look at I look at it as there's a writer who has made the kind of mistakes that makes him yearn for this kind of baptism and that's very moving to me. He wants to forget his sins. So yeah. it's kind of wish fulfillment. Yeah. That's moving to me. The idea that in his fantasy that could actually happen. There's something so painful in him that he wants to forget. Yeah, I see. That inspired him to write this scene, right? Could also I like that answer a lot. I'm not. I don't have an answer. I don't know. That's <laughs> one of my favorite things about this book is how many questions it raises for me and how little, it, how how much it makes me realize how little I know. One idea I had was that it's it could also be a kind of like you forget them as sins, or you know, when Virgil crowns him master of himself, he maybe he sees the ways in which those mistakes were necessary and integral. He forgets them as sins. Maybe he sees them as yeah. necessary parts of his life. Yeah. I, I love looking at it as a, a cleansing of regret. I mean, isn't that a, like the most beautiful thought? Hashtag no regrets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's this, oh man, there's this beautiful illustration, right, by Dore. Oh, it's too beautiful. Matilda holding Dante and his only the top of his head's poking out barely his nose and, and his eyes are kind of closed it's so beautiful it's probably my favorite Doré illustration oh. maybe my favorite Dante illustration I know and there's a lot of competition yeah um, so then he's ready for the stars as we said and they start floating up he and Beatrice start going up and up because when you're purged of all this sin and you're ready to ascend it's kind of like a helium balloon you, <laughs> you mm. lose you lose your weight you know that's tying you down to earth and you start floating up Mm. Many 
many, most, maybe all cultures throughout all human history, independently of each other, have all mythologized heaven or the afterlife or the good place as in the sky. The dwelling place of God is always in the sky. Mm. Uh, why, do you think? Why is heaven up? And hell is usually below, you know what I mean? So because why are there these human patterns? I feel like it's pretty natural and... I mean, you know, because you die and you go down. <laughs> you're buried or you're, you know, you become one with the earth. Well, but I mean, good people go up. I know. I'm just saying, like, that's where maybe that idea came from. If dying is is a returning to earth, then um, if you wanted the opposite, if you wanted a life mm. after death, then you would go up. <laughs> I see. And what about God? Why does God live in the sky? That also makes a lot of sense to me because there's nothing more symbolic of eternity than the sky. Mm. We can't make sense of the sky. Yeah, I see. The ocean is largely unexplored, but there's a bottom to it. And it changes. The stars don't really change. I mean, they revolve, yeah. but there's a kind of eternal constancy there. Mm -hmm. And eternal depth, a sense of eternal depth. Yeah. But also the sun gives life. You know, the sun is in the sky and it is it gives life to the world. Right. And I mean, really, there's there's not really anything in nature that's more awe-inspiring than some of the things the sky does, right? <laughs> I was reading to our kids just before this vacation about Ra, the Egyptian god, the sun god Ra, who apparently would take his boat that was carrying the sun on a voyage through the sky every day. And at night, he would dip down under the earth. And in the underworld, Apep, this giant snake monster, would try to swallow the sun. So this eternal battle every day. Mm. Um, so yeah, maybe the reasons are obvious. But then again, in Dante, heaven is up and it kind of isn't. When we get to the top of heaven, we'll see that it's just that it's not, we don't really reach a top at the very end. We reach a new center. You know, God is redefined as a kind of new center. So we should talk about uh, Canto 1 here. Okay. Um, oh, another thing we saw on our vacation reminded me of uh, this Canto 1. Remember that sun we saw? That sunset? Oh, yeah. This is what Dante says in Canto 1. I had not endured the sun long. So that he and Beatrice stare at the sun for longer than he thinks he should be able to with mortal eyes. I had not endured the sun long, but not so briefly that I did not see it scintillating like molten iron pouring out from a forge. I don't know what mixture of uh, phenomena created this, but one evening we were up there. The sun was hot red, glowing red. And massive. As it was setting. And this was like the day we had read this canto. I know. It's a sign. I know. And there's shooting stars, right? The day after I'd seen all those meteors. That's right, yeah. This is the very first tercet of paradise. The glory of him who moves all things penetrates the universe, and its splendor reflects more in one part and in another less. Why? And this idea is emphasized throughout Paradiso, this idea that there is variation and difference. It's not just uniform glory. Some things are more glorious and some things are less glorious. Mm -hmm. There's a continuous emphasis on difference. What was the reason for that again? I know um, Beatrice explains it to her. Well, we're going to get there in Canto something. Oh, okay. So maybe let's pause. And actually, in answer to your question, I'll say I don't know. Yeah, I know the explanations given in the parody, so I'm always like, uh... <laughs> That's one of the hardest things about this poem, actually, because there are there is an answer proposed to your very question. Yeah. But none of, and, and they're very rational, cerebral, intellectual, academic, logical answers. Mm -hmm. 
that, you know, rely heavily on the Bible and St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle and a mix of these. And, and they seem to me always maybe not outright nonsensical, but um, if not outright nonsensical, then irrelevant and kind of dead in the water. Every time one of these answers, these discourses is, provi- is provided by a character in the Paradiso app. I just think, okay, so what? This, this do- A doesn't make sense. B isn't important. And the pilgrim is constantly told, you can't know. Uh-huh. There are mysteries. There are divine mysteries that you will never understand. He's told this over and over again. And then he asks a question about one of those mysteries and is given this very unsatisfactory and convoluted, overly cerebral answer. So I'm going to side at this point in my life with the people in Paradiso who say to him, you can't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Because all of the attempts at knowledge are completely, enragingly not tying. But uh, maybe the fact that this keeps happening in the parody, so don't you think there's a lesson in that? Like, you have to keep trying to figure it out anyway. You have to keep asking questions, even if you suspect that there's no answer. Yeah, I mean, I think you could be right there. I don't want to give. I don't want to let myself off the hook and say I never have to do any intellectual work. Yeah. That's true. Um, but we'll get to some examples of this later, like when Peter asks him what is faith and stuff, and he gives these <laughs> answers. I'm like, it's just so... I've heard the same unsatisfying, hollow answer at church a thousand times. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I much more respond to the angels that tell him, look, divinity is transcendent. What you wish to know, you can never know. Yeah. It's beyond your grasp. That, I, I used to think that was a cop-out too. God's ways are higher than... Your ways, I just think, well, how convenient. That'll let you off the hook for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I like that idea now. I like the idea of admitting that the finite mind craves the infinite, but is somehow fundamentally incompatible because of its finitude mm-hmm. with the infinite. Yeah, I mean, Dante was an extremely smart person. Surely he, based on all the things you just said, that he had the same opinion, that there's just things we can't understand and know. So why do you think he spent so much time, so many cantos this way? With the seminars, the dissertations? Yeah, especially coming out of the purgatory that ended like with the most incredible climax <laughs> that he couldn't ever have hoped was, for. Yeah, and it was, an ex- it was a climax, climax that was explicitly non... It was symbolic and allegorical and non-logical. You know, it wasn't an attempt at logical discourse. Exactly. So what, what happened? He get he's like okay now I'm writing the parody so what what is my next move he can't keep being climactic because that would be exhausting is he trying to spare us too much joy and calm us down a little bit for the next climax <laughs> I mean yeah variation pace you know there are aesthetic reasons why one would do this got to be more to it than that I think he desires knowledge you know yeah. you you were talking about desire. Mm-hmm. He desires Beatrice, so there's Eros here. But what it, what is one of mankind's it's Aristotle? I think if you read the Poetics, yeah, or the Metaphysics by Aristotle, I think the very first sentence is all humans desire to know by nature. This is what he says: all humans by nature desire to know. Mm-hmm. So we have this innate curiosity. Yeah, think, just think of our son. Certainly one of the most curious people I've ever known. Oh yeah. You know, and it was inscribed in his egg. It's just constant craving for knowledge. He wants to know. You can't even, like, get his attention because he's always trying to figure something out. Always trying to figure out something and learn and ask us questions. It'd be a big letdown if the Paradiso didn't, wasn't full of 
Dante asking questions, right? Being curious. Where else would you so, ask? Where else would you ask such questions? Exactly. So this is an honor. He's on. This is his way of honoring this innate human tendency and need and desire. Our desire to know. He asks questions. The angels do their best to explain to this finite mortal brain. I know it's like. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, but no. It's like um, when your kids ask you, "What about this and that?" You know, after death, and you're like, "Well, we'll just." <laughs> You know, if there if there is an afterlife, if there's a God, then we'll just have to wait and ask. Or not even metaphysical questions. Our, our son is so into right. chemistry right now. And I've tried to explain to him why he can't buy a forge and melt metal. You know, he, he knows it's technically possible, so he doesn't understand why it's not safe or feasible for an eight-year-old to be doing in his bedroom. He can't. I tried to explain it to him, but it, he can't get it. He's too young to mm-hmm. understand why this is not... An activity for an eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. So that's a very human thing too. You know, I like this way of recuperating or rescuing these otherwise dry theological seminars. Humans crave to know. So that's why he's asking. That's, I think that's one answer. That's my best shot at the at your question. I know. I honestly would be disappointed if if there wasn't some of that. Right. Of course, I got bored <laughs> with a lot of it, but. It wouldn't be yeah. right to not ask questions if I ever when, get to when he finally is around people who have more wisdom. If I ever get to heaven, I'm going to ask those same questions too. Exactly. Canto 1 opens with this invocation to Apollo. Oh, good Apollo, for this final labor, make me as much a vessel of your power as you require to bestow your beloved laurel. Come into my breast and breathe there as you did when you drew Marcius out of the scabbard of his body. So Marcius is this character in Greek mythology who challenged Apollo to a singing contest, Apollo, god of poetry. Marcius was punished for this kind of pride and hubris to assume that he could outdo a god at singing. Punishment was that he he was skinned alive. I have two questions. Yeah. I I have two questions. Why is Apollo, this pagan god, being evoked? In this most Christian of poems, it seems quite blasphemous. That's my first question. That's funny. My second is, isn't Dante... At risk of committing the same sin as Marcius to assume that he could sing a song that would do justice to a god. That that he could describe. That he could describe a god, even though he's just a lowly mortal. Oh, I think it's more more like these literary figures and writers are his friends rather than gods to him. You know, just like Virgil was his friend and guide. Maybe he's invoking a friend. I know, but just think of what Christians have been burned at the stake for. Stuff like this, praying to, you know, pagan gods, false idols. It seems quite daring. That's true. That's fate. Yeah. Well, he does seem to like to stir up things. So, yeah, <laughs> maybe that's what he's doing. Well, or maybe he's not a Christian at heart. He seems ah. to believe in a lot of things. In a way, just believing in one thing, in one religion, is maybe unimaginative to him. Or one religion as as he so, inherits it. It's quite an unchristian poem. I mean, uncatholic poem. Yeah. In terms of dogma. Yeah, his imagination is too great to be reduced to just one, one religion. It's another thing I like about this poem is that it contains everything. The universe. Yeah. It's encyclopedic and therefore inexhaustible. But it is interesting what you were the thing you brought up about hubris. Surely somebody like Dante would, <laughs> it would cross his mind. You know, I'm going to get to. If I get to heaven, what's my gift going to mean there? My talent, right? Will it be nothing? Will I hold up against some of these divine people? Yeah. 
And he, always in the shadow of moments like this is Ulysses, who was punished, who was in the Inferno for trying to sail to the divine purgatory, mm-hmm. overstepping the mark of what he was otherwise entitled to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Dante is risking a similarly audacious journey. Mm-hmm. And he already knows that he's proud. And that's he's right. Proud. So is there anything else to say about this? Is he just is there a good virtuous pride? Or daring? Icarus, you know, Icarus. He's he's being Icarus here. Is there a good way to be Icarus? Or, I don't know, I don't know. Or Maybe there isn't. There, maybe this is just him, like, a, maybe kind of there confessing Maybe there is. He is not traveling alone through these realms. He always has a guide. Yeah, and the Pilgrim is a character defined by ignorance and confusion. Exactly. So I think that kind of redeems him from total arrogance. I suppose. Yeah, he was taught. He had an apprenticeship. Yeah, he couldn't have made it by himself. Um, I really like the character of Picarda in Canto 3. So in Canto 3, they arrive at the moon, the heaven of the moon, and they meet this nun named Picarda. And Dante asks her, the moon is kind of the lowest, the farthest, Dante thinks it's the farthest away from the center, farthest away from the light of God. It's the kind of quote-unquote lowest rung of paradise. And Dante asks her, aren't you dissatisfied to be this far away? from God. You know, isn't it against your will to be given this quote-unquote lower status? And she says, no, it's not. It's exactly my will. I'm ex- I'm perfectly content with what I have. What does she do all day? <laughs> yeah, that's another, I don't know, sing. She praises, you know? You know, for most of my quote-unquote, I was about to say spiritual journey. <laughs> a horrible phrase. For most of my life, I've been quite dissatisfied with this kind of response, like, you know, accept your lot or thy will be done or God will reward people according to his own desire, and we have to be okay with loved ones suffering and being stuck in crappy jobs, and shouldn't we want to aspire to greater levels of success and well-being and accomplishment and status and safety? Shouldn't we want to strive for more? And these moments, you know, and we hear people at church, you know, various religious creeds say, no, accept your lot. God's ways are higher than thy ways, and I always thought, it's just a cop-out. Accept the things you can't change. Yeah, if I if I am becoming wiser, I'm not sure I am, but it's in that exact way where we have there's two skills here, I think. And these two skills I think contradict each other, but are equally important. The first skill is to strive. You know, in the Pearl by Steinbeck we read that this is what makes humans what does he say? Um what separates humans from the animals. Yeah, it's what makes us divine. We crave more and we strive for more and we can accomplish more. Yeah. There's a contradictory skill of accepting fate. Yeah. And uh, this is what the Bhagavad Gita, you know, and the Tao Te Ching teach us. Some days we need to do one and other days we need to do another. Yeah. Thoughts about well, this? So Picarda says, no, I'm good here at the moon. I'm good. This is, I don't, I don't desire more than this. I find this like extremely noble and inspiring, her answer. You know, if you think about dreams in life, oh, I wish I could accomplish this and achieve that and do that and go there and meet her and be meet recognized who? for this. <laughs> you know what I mean, though, right? On one hand, I wouldn't want to say, no, don't desire those things. But on the other hand, it's absolutely necessary to learn to say, "Don't I don't need any of that. Yeah. Don't need any of that. Mm-hmm. I agree. I I think um, desire is great when, it, when we're talking about things that can be changed. But yeah, things you cannot change. You just need to do that quicksand thing where you stop fighting and you just float. Yeah, so the phrase, thy will be done, is that kind of like the 
Picarda says, I am where God wants me, and therefore, what else could I want? I want to read you some Rilke here. I found this bit of Rilke that helped me. He expresses this paradox very well. This is in a letter. He's talking about death and... Because it's like, you know, you would never say to somebody at a funeral, like, oh, this is what God wants, you know, accept it. So Rilke is dealing with this problem of grief and how we can, quote unquote, accept the death of people we love. And he says this, the great secret of death, and perhaps its deepest connection with us, is this, that in taking from us a being we have loved and venerated, death does not wound us without at the same time lifting us towards a more perfect understanding of this being and of ourselves. He keeps going, I am not saying that we should love death, but rather that we should love life so generously without picking and choosing that we automatically include it, life's other half, in our love. This is what actually happens in the great expansiveness of love, which cannot be stopped or constricted. It is only because we exclude it that death becomes more and more foreign to us and ultimately our enemy. So, Mm -hmm. my reading of that is that we love life so much that it the circumference of our love expands so widely that it includes death. Yeah, that's uh, very Aurelius, right? Aurelius uh, teaches that we should study change, that we should study all of nature, all of life. Yeah, it's part of a cycle. Exactly, and accept that we are part of a cycle and that that's even a beautiful thing. We're like, you know, a plant or a tree. What I think he talks about the olive tree. Yeah, the ripe olives fall. Or figs. He talks about olives and figs, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Rome. (laughs) Rome. Summer nights. (laughs) Oh, Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> when you look at it that way, though, then it feels more of like a companionship. You're part of a beautiful cycle. And it would seem selfish and arrogant, or I don't know what the right word is, just simply unnatural to want to be exempt from that the powerful play of life, as Whitman would say. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. It would seem unnatural. And Picarda gets to be a part of paradise. You know, she's she's there. She's an ingredient in paradise. Yeah. And thus spoke Zarathustra. What a horrible title. <laughs> Nietzsche has another wonderful articulation of this. He says, the character of Zarathustra says, Did you ever say yes to one joy? Oh, my friends, then you said yes to all woe as well. All things are chained and entwined together. All things are in love. If you ever wanted one moment twice... If you ever said, you please me, happiness, instant, moment, then you wanted everything to return. You wanted everything anew, everything eternal, everything chained and twined together, everything in love. Well, that is how you loved the world, you everlasting men. Loved it eternally and for all time. And you say even to woe, go, but return, for all joy wants eternity. So if you say yes to one happiness, if you have one sweet moment, then you're saying yes to all moments. That's how I feel every time I look at my daughter's face. <laughs> you know, I think, oh, why did I let this huge joy into my life? Because I have also let in all woe by accepting, by bringing this joy into my life. Yeah, but it's the joy is better than the woe. It is, of course. It outweighs it. But they're not, you can't get one without the other. Yeah. One thing Picarda says to Dante is that everywhere in heaven is paradise. Everywhere in heaven is paradise. Mm-hmm. There are no lower rungs, really. Yeah, that is a nice change from Inferno, isn't it? <laughs> it's beautiful. 
you know, in the Gospel of Thomas, which is an apocryphal gospel, his Christ's disciples say, when will when will the kingdom come? And Jesus says, it will not come by waiting for it. It will not be a matter of saying, here it is or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and people do not see it. Everywhere is paradise. Mm. Hier sein ist herrlich, is what Rilke says in the Divino Elegies. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Yeah. It's no good translation of that because it's such a tight phrase in German, but being here is heavenly or something, you know, like. Yeah. It is heaven. That's heaven. The present. What else do you have to say? We're moving to Canto 4 now. One question I had for you I'd like you to talk about is the question of metaphor. How much of this heaven is metaphorical and how much is literal? Yeah, that's in, a good question. In Canto 4, I think it's Beatrice speaking. Or maybe it's Picarda. I can't remember. Or maybe it's Dante. It doesn't matter. We are told, quote, This is why scripture comes down to your level when it attributes hands and feet to God while intending to convey another meaning. Scripture comes down to our level by attributing hands and feet to God while intending another meaning. Scripture says God has hands and feet, but that's just a metaphor. Oh, I see. So... You, you have to use human language to describe things. That's all you can do. <laughs> so how much of this book is a metaphor? Does Dante believe that the afterlife really takes place among the stars? What's your sense? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm asking because I, I don't know. The pilgrim is having a literal experience, and I suspect that Dante, the writer, is uh, is pushing his imagination to as far as he can, and he is uh, he is experimenting with his imagination to see how far can can this idea of the afterlife go. So I don't think that the writer literally thinks this is what it's going to be like. You know? No. Why not? Because he's inventing it. Maybe it's wishful thinking, or maybe it's... Um, it must mean something to him. It's not just a fantasy novel. No, I know. Maybe he hopes, maybe he hopes that it's like that, but, um, but I feel even... like it's too messy and all over the place for him to really believe that that's what it's going to be like. So these are the allegorical afterlife. symbols. There's not, if you ask Dante what is, the, what is heaven, he... he you think he wouldn't literally say, well, there's people revolving around the moon and or around Mercury, and this is a, this is a continuation of the allegory with which purgatory ended. Yeah. Is that, is that what you think? Yeah. Well, if that's true, what is it an allegory of? Where do we go when we die, if, if we're righteous? It's an allegory of the extent to which humans can desire. <laughs> Where does the soul go? I don't think that Dante ever tells us that definitively. Yeah, I don't know. I'm asking questions I have no idea how I would answer. I don't know. I never feel like, I know I've told you this before, um, I never feel like any of this is um, doctrine being presented to us. It feels more like a really, really, really deep daydream to me. But it, uh, daydreams are free associative and have no necessary meaning. This is highly structured and planned, so it must have a meaning, an allegorical meaning, a metaphorical meaning. I mean, there's many. I've there's so many layers that you could, you know, apply to life now, not just the afterlife, right? I was lost in a dark wood, and then he yeah. leans on a guide, smarter people than him. Right. And he finds redemption and love and light. Yeah. He lets himself be saved by another person. Yeah. And I think what you say about desire is important too, because it's it's love that moves the sun and other stars, as we'll see at the end. So God is love 
God is desire. Yeah, and you know, I just thought of this. Um, remember the the people vestibule to hell? Yeah. There's those people who um, are worse than all the others, right? Doesn't he yeah. say that? Because they were lukewarm in life. They didn't want anything. They did not desire anything. Right. And then the entire book goes on about desire. This is exactly, it's kind of like why I read that, because can't say it's there, paradise is there, paradise is here. It's an emotion. So anytime yeah. you are experiencing love or desire, that's what heaven is. Yeah, it's the ability to want something. I mean, isn't that, that's the greatest thing. I mean, we were the, just on vacation with our kids and we, you know, we're always trying to plan our days and what they wanted the most was to want things <laughs> yeah. on our vacation. And if you can maximize your desire by having an object that's worthy of it, like, you know, Beatrice or God, you know, you can increase your desire by pointing it in a direction that is worthy of it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like the idea that, that we can experience paradise before we die through desire and love. Mm -hmm. Right. Not by being um, lukewarm. Yeah. There's this wonderful, they get to the planet Mercury. And there's this wonderful simile here. As, as fish in a pool that is calm and clear are drawn to whatever comes from beyond because they think that it is their food, so I saw more than a thousand splendors draw near to us. And then each I heard, Behold another who will increase our loves. Mm -hmm. And as these spirits drew near to us, the shade of each one of them seemed filled with joy in the sheer effulgence that shone from them. I know, that, that struck me the most. That, that's <clears> what <throat> keeps striking me in the paradise. Paradiso. I was worried that once he gets to heaven, everybody would be satisfied and it would just be like, well, we've arrived. Yeah. Isn't that nice? But they keep wanting things. Dante keeps wanting things. I know. And they are delighted by new arrivals, these, uh, these beings there, right? Yeah. Because it gives them more to want. More to love. More to love. I know I love it when they say all of us are ready to please you. And uh, so that you may in turn take pleasure in us. That's yeah, in Canto 8, one, one of the souls up there says to him, uh, pleasing each other, that's the purpose. Yeah. There's this importance on variation. And, and um, in Canto 8, the question is asked, how can a good father beget evil sons? And an example of one of these very dissatisfyingly cerebral, overly academic knot-tying answers, the angel says something like, well, the angel says... The roots, therefore, of your activities must be diverse. So one is born Solon, another Xerxes, one Melchizedek, and another one who flew through the air and lost his son. That's right, so a reference to Icarus there. Yeah. Circling nature who sets her imprint on mortal wax, plies her craft well, but does not distinguish one house from another. And so it happens that Esau differs in the seed from Jacob, and Quirinus has so base a father he is ascribed to Mars. Nature, once begotten, would always follow a course like that of its begetters, if divine providence were not in control. What was behind you is before you now, but so you may know how much you please me, do cloak yourself in this corollary. When nature encounters any fortune contrary to her, then, like a seed on foreign soil, it does not go well. And if the world below paid more heed to what nature lays down as a foundation and built on that, the people would succeed. But no, you conscript into religion one born to wear a sword, and make a king of one more suited to preach a sermon, and so go astray in the path you are taking. I mean, I really like the idea of difference and this anti-conformity. There's a 
insistence, this anti-monotony insistence that some people are kings, some people are poets, some people are soldiers, some people are scholars, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't bend one person into another kind of person. That's, that's a beautiful be idea to me. Business majors or no, dentists. We, <laughs> we shouldn't all have the same haircut, wear the same clothes. We should become who we are and not who someone else is. This whole thing about nature randomizes the selection of good souls and evil souls. I mean, I don't really understand all that. In order, I feel like at this point, it would be worth trying to chew on for too long. I'm glad that I wasn't the only one who was unsatisfied, <laughs> dissatisfied with the answers. Well, I think we can confidently say, you know, how, how should we read? In um example I've been thinking of lately is In the Frogs by Aristophanes. I think it's Dionysus or Hercules. Like, I don't know, goes down to goes to the afterlife and has to pick one Greek tragedian to bring back and write plays again. If you could could rescue one playwright from death and bring back, who would you bring back? So he's like, he's weighing, it's a comedy, so he's trying to determine who is the best playwright. And he like puts the plays and physical scales and like which whose plays are heaviest and maybe that will tell him who is best and all these absurd trials to determine who is the best playwright. And eventually he just announces that I'm going to pick this person. I think it's Euripides uh, because he speaks to my heart. So he kind of gives up logical explanation. I don't know why. The reason is it speaks to my heart. So as readers, I think we're totally entitled to like, oh, let's just skim over this. It's not speaking to my heart. Don't be lazy. You know, do the hard work. You reap what you sow. You'll 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 get what you give. Yeah. But you're not obligated to love every page of every text equally. I know this is why I'm glad I read this in my own free time rather than for a class. Because yeah. then you would be like, oh, no, I better understand this <laughs> this uh, answer to the pilgrim's question or I won't do well on the test, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, none of that matters. How great is this uh, in Canto 13? But nature always delivers something less than sheer perfection. Working like an artist who knows his craft but has a hand that trembles. Yeah, that's really beautiful. The thing that strikes me about that is that you can know your craft, you know what would make it perfect, but your physical, your body gets in the way every time. <laughs> but And that's good. It's better and that, that it's way good, right, than yeah. a hand that doesn't tremble. Two mm-hmm. straight lines would actually be worse. You know, we, that's what we love about nature. I mean, nature does have a lot of symmetry, but it has wildness. And that's what and, we... L- and, and error, you know, and meandering. And that's what we, exactly those things you just mentioned are what we love about the Divine Comedy. Yeah. It has a lot of lines and symmetry and structure, but it has a lot of, <laughs> I mean, error etymologically in the sense of meandering, t- weird twists, trembling hands. I know, but even with the bits. form, even with the form, it trembles as a kind of a trembling hand too, because uh, sometimes things just end abruptly and then keep going yeah. in the next canto. And it's like, that's right. You kind of feel the way. Yeah, the form didn't. And I'm slightly yeah, and I'm slightly mad that Virgil was left out of paradise, but I think I would like the book less if Dante put Virgil right in heaven cuz it's like, kind of to be expected, you know? So have a little bit of a it's not exactly a trembling hand cuz that's not a mistake, but maybe that was a bad example. But um maybe it's a misjudgment of mine to critique the poem for leaving Virgil out of paradise, but if it is, I can take the advice given to us at the end of Canto 13. And so people should not be overly certain in their judgments, yeah. like those who reckon up the grain in the field before it is ripe. For I have seen the briar all winter long look desiccated and bristle with thorns, then later bear roses on its branches' tips, 
and once I saw a ship, whose voyage had been straight and swift over the open sea, sink in the harbor just as she pulled in. And let Mr. and Mrs. not think when they see one person steal and another donate his all, that they see with the eye of divinity, for the one may still rise and the other fall. So we can't judge the worth of souls. We think a person is bad, but we don't know their story. We think a person is good, but they could be hiding all sorts of vices from us. We can't expect to know how things will turn out for us in our life. We certainly cannot predict the future. We can't We can't know why some people suffer and others don't. Mm -hmm. This is just obvious truth. We can't know. And I can't know why... You know, my judgment that it was a mistake to leave Virgil out of paradise, I shouldn't trust that judgment. Yeah. You know, we should be sure. humble humble in our judgments. Dante must have had a very good reason. I still think it's because of that powerful moment when he finally sees Beatrice. And he's he's so fully loves her that she eclipses everything else. You can only love one thing that much at a time. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a piece of it for sure. Because that's the moment he vanishes. He can't have two guides. That would be weird. Imagine Virgil and Beatrice. Yeah. They wouldn't have the same dynamic. And this is a love, the whole book is a love poem to Beatrice, so Virgil's got to go. It could be the best explanation. He gets to Canto 14, which is um, the heaven of the sun, and he sees souls that tell him, Nor will such light be able to tire us, for our body's organs will be strong enough for anything that can bring us delight. It's wonderful. The, the, it is. The capacity of the body to feel pleasure is heightened in, in paradise. I know, but what do you think that says about pleasure on earth? That it's not evil? Well, but about its limits. It's not limited there in heaven, but on earth it is. On earth, too much of a good thing is bad. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I see. If we ate the food we wanted, it would hurt, hurt us. Right. Or if we desired one person too much. <laughs> uh-huh. Right? That's obsession. And then, or infidelity. You know what I mean? Speaking of Dante. His love for Beatrice instead of his wife? Yeah. Yeah, you can get, you can arrive at a place. I don't know. I don't know. What do I know? Speculation. You can arrive at a place in life like Virgil crowns Dante his own, in his own master, like yeah. where your your pleasures can be pursued ultimately. I don't know because you've grown up and you know. I mean, I know that if I ate a bag of gummy worms, I gummy worms. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes no, up. Oh, come on. It's just an example. You know what I mean? The ultimate temptation. <laughs> no, it's not really. But, you know, okay, I don't know what. Pie, an ice cream, chocolate cake, tiramisu, you know. Holistically, that wouldn't add to the pleasure in my life. It would make my taste buds feel great, but I don't know what I'm trying to say. You need to go. Maybe what I'm saying is that you need to go through an apprenticeship so that you can tell the difference between good desires and bad desires and uh, be mature enough to pursue good desires without limitation. I, we were saying this in the earlier podcast. God cannot be loved enough, nor can our children. We can't love them too much. So I think this is, this is like a, a fraction of maybe what Dante means. I, I don't know. And then there's also a bunch of stuff about, you know, first time he saw Beatrice, he couldn't look at her face. Her, her face was veiled because it would have been too bright. <laughs> but, you know, we can't look at the sun with our human bodies. But that, our yeah. organs... Our bodies are not strong enough to be able to do that as much as we want to. You know what I mean? Until, I mean, Dante is able to because his body is kind of strengthened and purged of its incapacities and flaws. So he can now look at the sun for longer. He can now, every, it's hilarious how every canto, Beatrice becomes brighter and brighter. And 
her smile is more and more beautiful and her eyes are more and more lustrous. <laughs> Dante is kind of like inching his way, acclimating to her full grandeur one canto at a time. There's a hilarious end to Canto 14 where he's like, I saw something that was more beautiful than anything else I had ever seen so far in my journey. And then he says, but if, reader, you think that I mean including Beatrice, I'm only saying this because I hadn't at this point looked at Beatrice's eyes yet on this rung. And once I did, <laughs> I, I saw that they were even more beautiful than the thing I was seeing. So oh, yeah. <laughs> nothing is allowed to be more beautiful than Beatrice. And she would agree because that was why Dante ended up in the dark, in the lost in the dark woods because he forgot about her. Yeah. He forgot that she was the most glorious. It's not just a love poem to Beatrice, it's a love poem to love. You're right. It, it, love poem to Dante. Well, to Dante's emotion, to Dante's desire. Mm. Desire is God. Yeah. In Canto 15, Dante meets, this is the uh, heaven of Mars, <laughs> and he meets his great-great-grandfather, Cacciaguida. It's really hard to imagine all these places, isn't it? Well, it's because they're slightly uniform. I mean, Mars, we saw in the telescope, you could see the, the eye, the hurricane on Jupiter through our telescope. And you could see the rings of Saturn. So the planets look the same, but... Sorry. So the planets look different, but not really that different. I mean, it's not like... It's not near the level of variation we get in the Inferno. Rivers, canyons, mountains, furnaces, ice, mm -hmm. giants, cliffs. You know, it's a whole various landscape in there. Here, it's kind of like another star, another star, another star. I wonder if... Sorry, I just distracted you, but I wonder if heaven has to be take place in the spare space because what would a writer like Dante value more than uh, infinite space for the imagination? No limits to what... But I, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, but to follow that logic, it's like, why isn't this more like Star Trek, a show I know you love? No. <laughs> 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 the only part you don't love about me is my love of Star Trek. Oh, man. Don't diss my love. If there's anything Dante has taught you, it's it's to not disrespect love. And my love of Star Trek is pure. It's a pure love. I have and noticed. It, could, it can be pursued <laughs> eternally and without limit. Yeah, you there's a lot of episodes. You can't see her face cringing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you could imagine a version of this poem that's more like Star Trek, where Dante, quote-unquote, beams down to these planets and walks around. And, and the geology is different. The typography is different. There's different animals on each planet. I miss that it, a little. It's, it's like we, we always stay in orbit, and so the planets aren't really differentiated. Yeah. I know I'm, whenever I start a new canto, and it's like, no, we're on Mars. I'm like... There's very little difference between that and Venus. I know, yeah. I mean, allegorically, there isn't Venus's is love, Mars's is war, but in terms of... What's happening to... I'm sorry, I keep <laughs> distracting you. Why does Dante veer away from all the vivid imagery. Well, the sim I think the similes are as great. Yeah, but he do he clearly loves landscapes and earth and comparing places in purgatory and hell to earth. Well, I'll give you a tiny answer that I might... I don't know. I, I don't know anything about this poem. <laughs> I'm always hesitant to assert anything about this poem. I don't know. One thing I would say if cornered is he has to. As we were talking about heaven, Ascender. the sky is heaven. Yeah. So he, he's working with the material that human myth and the unconscious and these archetypes, he's inherited all this. He can't. It just makes intuitive sense that God is up there. And the stars are the stars. You know, he can't change that landscape. It's so fascinating. It's, isn't it? 
the fact that hell is the most concrete because but, because in writing often uh, the more abstract it gets the worse it gets but not always this could explain your love for what happens when Kachaguida, his his great great grandfather arrives on the scene Kachaguida was a he died a crusading knight so in, you know in this worldview he's a hero a martial hero which is why he's on mars or circling mars mm-hmm. Kachaguida appears like a shooting star there's a yeah. moment there was a moment on one of our nights there stargazing where you said okay we'll go home just after i see one more what did you say i want to see a a, me- a shooting star that makes me go whoa and instantly <laughs> As soon as you said that. I know. I actually exclaimed, whoa. <laughs> there was an enormous one. It was uh, a little too good. <laughs> it, was, it was weird. <laughs> so, as a fiery streak will sometimes shoot across a clear, tranquil sky, drawing to it eyes that had just been relaxed and calm, and seems to be a star leaving its place, except that there isn't any star lost from where it was kindled. And it lasts a short time, in the same way from the arm of the cross that stretched to the right, a star raced to the foot of the constellation that was shining there. And uh, this is Kachaguida. Kachaguida starts speaking to Dante, quote, so profoundly I could not understand him. It wasn't by choice that he concealed his thoughts, but by necessity, for his conceptions transcended mortal signification. Then, when the bow, when the bow of his ardent love had unbent enough for his speech to descend to the level of our human intellect, the first thing that I understood was, blessed be thou, Trinity, and one who art so courteous to my offshoot. There's this wonderful moment. You like this language bit, don't you? Cacciaguida has this harangue about the current populace of Florence. He says that in the olden days, they would keep good watch over the cradle, soothing the infant with the baby talk that new mothers and fathers love to speak. Yeah, I, I thought that part was interesting. There's so many places where these divine beings begin speaking and then they have, they, you know, Dante doesn't understand them and they have to change their language so that he understands. First of all, it's interesting because Dante chose to write the book in the vernacular, right? In the yeah. Italian. So he also, he knows what it's like to make that choice to want to be understood by more. It's a more intimate language. It's not formal or academic or ceremonial like latin would have been right and 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 then the uh the parents you know his forefather talks about parents using baby talk and that they love to do that yeah it's not like they are condescending to their baby this is like the ultimate expression of love right (laughs) it is baby talk's good for babies' brains it is yeah parents do love it i know (laughs) i think it's cool that that part was included, that the parents love it. I think maybe he is uh, making a point about how wonderful it is to communicate with people, to communicate in a way that they understand, and not to want to elevate yourself above others. Yeah. And this is wonderful personalization of it, too. Baby talk is different in each family. It's a language that you invent, and it's really your own. Mm-hmm. It's not the same across families, you know? Mm-hmm. You invent your own rules. Very much like Dante is inventing the rules of his own religion. His whole cosmic outlook is totally invented. And it's, yeah, and it's not a, out of disrespect, it's out of love. He he wants to find a way to explain his uh, ideas of heaven to us. We're being baby-talked to by Dante. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not an act of, as you say, it's not an act of condescension. He loves us and wants to teach us something. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, and even if he doesn't want to teach us something, he wants to communicate with us. 
It's a two-way. That's better. What you just said is better because communication doesn't have to mean information delivery. Uh-huh. It can just be emotional. It just wants to connect. You know, it, you know. It's very reminiscent of that thing we loved in the uh, in the Purgatorio of the mass, the, the the hymn whose lyrics are only half heard. Yep. It's kind of baby talk. Is kind of mostly rhythmic, musical. It's very little to do with denotation, semantic meaning. You know, it's it's mostly rhythmic. It's kind of. Uh, <laughs> does energy exchange seem to? <laughs> Fake. <laughs> yeah. New age, <laughs> hipster bullcrap. No, but it's it seems like with that kind of thing, the main message is, I am happy to be here. I'm happy that you are here. I love you. <laughs> I love you. The main message is, I love you. So you like this. It also, it's also like there's languages inside of language. And there are several details here, flames within flames, rings within rings. And in this canto, canto 15... He is between, Dante the Pilgrim is between Beatrice, the woman he loves, and this great-great-grandfather, mm-hmm. his own ancestor. And he says, For within her eyes there glowed such a smile, I thought that my own eyes had touched the depths of my glory and of my paradise. So inside of paradise as a whole, there's a personal paradise. It's kind of like what Picardo was saying, like, I don't need to be somewhere else. Yeah. So everyone inside of paradise as a whole finds a niche where they like it the best. Dante says, my paradise is between my great-great-grandfather and Beatrice. I know. I love that so much because, I mean, the most dreadful thing I could imagine is a paradise that is um, a mech paradise, you know, mass-produced. Right. The same thing for everyone. That's horrible. Yeah. We all need our own personal paradise. And I love that in this world that's possible to have your own your own heaven within heaven it's very individual and very you know pro-individuality you you responded more than i did i think to this russian doll motif that carries through the whole thing there's fire within fire rings within rings light within light rainbows within rainbows voices within voices you know, just popping up from here to here in random images random moments throughout the whole poem yeah what is it that you like so much about that or uh, i don't know it's hard examples but it's hard to articulate but i think it also is just one more it's just metaphors for humans desire for depth for peeling back layers infinitely yeah one voice is not enough you want another voice within that voice humans are always wanting to discover they're desiring to always find more things to love <laughs> Like those beings. Yeah. You're asking, why is it so kind of um, monochromatic in paradise? And why is Earth so seem so far away? Yeah. Cachaguida in Canto 16 is in paradise and can't stop talking about Florence. Yeah, it's beautiful. And there are, you, you, you should talk about this because you compared it to the catalog of ships. Oh, yeah, and the Iliad. Right. Um, when Dante's forefather goes on and on about all these different families, and he names them. And this huge list of names of families. Of course, we don't understand them. We don't know them. I know, and actually, and I you actually love this bit. I know. I, I, it was one that I happened to read out loud to you because we're in the car. Yeah. And reading a. This is the kind of life I'm living, people. Can you imagine being read Dante to while driving? <laughs> Doesn't get much better. 
with me butchering the Italian family names. Oh, that's all part of the charm. That's all part of it. <laughs> it's my paradise. <laughs> um, but it is, a, it, it echoes back to what you raised earlier. Like, he hasn't forgotten about Earth. Dante loves Earth. Mm. He misses Florence. Dante does, as an exile. So even the people in heaven can't stop thinking about, talking about, longing for Earth. You know... Home. Not just yes, Earth. Specifically home. home. Maybe that's one more thing that I that makes me a kindred spirit with Dante. I, I moved to Utah from Germany when I was 14, and that felt like a type of exile. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm sure it did. It was a very, uh, you know... Yes, it was a very violent like shift in my life at such a strange age, right? So, yeah, I I respond to this huge sense of homesickness in the entire book. Isn't there isn't there just a huge weight in that book, a longing for home? I think there's something there. Yeah, we're in paradise, but this is allegorical. God only has hands and feet as metaphors for our understanding. I'm I'm leaning towards the interpretation that this is not meant to be taken literally. Heaven is not in mm. the planets. Yeah. He is thinking about home. Cachaguita is thinking about home. So it, He's using it, it, using all these realms as a counterbalance to to Earth. To, think about love and desire. What do these mm. people love and desire? They love and desire their hometowns. That's, that's what's in their minds. That's I what, know. And even just um, naming all these families... Just family names. It reminded me of the Iliad, all those, um, all those ships, and uh, the names of the soldiers that die. Yeah, it it becomes really um, what's the word incantatory, and yeah. um, you know, it's almost like you know some of those memorials, Holocaust memorials, or even war memorials with uh, soldier names. Yeah, it's important to name them. Yeah, there's names on graves it's for a reason. Act of love. Yeah. While he's talking to his great-great-grandfather, he says, My mind has so many streams of delight that it makes itself happier just to see it can sustain such joy without exploding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I, I was so happy. The only thing that made me happier was to see how happy I could be without exploding. <laughs> okay, Keats. Happy, happy. Well, no, wait, what is that? Oh, happy, happy bows. Happy Melodist or Happy Love. More Happy Happy Love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, that could be a, a Dante reference. Yeah, or at least inspired by... I've always thought that was an absurd part. In it's like something a kid poem. would say. Like, I know. I can't believe I'm so happy that I'm... I'm so happy that I'm not exploding with happiness. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you only have to be a kid once to... <laughs> or experience one Christmas as a child to... Yeah. You didn't know you could contain such happiness, and that makes you even happier, the fact that you can. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention before we leave Canto 15 is um, this wonderful image of Cachaguida appearing to Dante like a shooting star. And we saw a few shooting stars, and maybe this is veering too far away from the text, but I spent some moments thinking about why we value shooting stars so much. Why are they such a sought-after phenomena? They're rare, but not that rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It struck me that they could be a good emblem of impermanence against a background of permanence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Things that we love seem so impermanent. Mm -hmm. And we love them more than the background permanent things. Stars are taken for granted. They're always there. And then when there's a shooting star, it seems like it reminds us of ourselves and everything we love. Yeah, fleeting and brief. 
Yeah, something permanent almost never makes us gasp. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was also reading that Rilke poem at the same time. This is kind of serendipitous little connection here, but there's a Rilke poem that you and I read together, you introduced me to before we were even dating. One of our one of my first memories with you is sitting in the courtyard of the Humanities Building and you we were reading the Book of Images and you were re- you read this poem. Do you want to read it? Autumn? Uh yes. Or should in- I? No, I can read it. Autumn. The leaves are falling, falling as if from far off, as if in the heavens distant gardens withered. They fall with gestures that say no. And in the nights the heavy earth falls from all the stars into a loneness. We're all falling. This hand is falling. And look at the others. It is in them all. And yet there is one who holds this falling with infinite softness in his hands. Yeah, so I just happened to read this at the same time we were reading the Paradiso. It struck me as a wonderful depiction of the Paradiso, or of Dante's worldview in general, where in our here and now context, it looks like things that we love are just disappearing. Mm-hmm. Autumn leaves, everything from autumn leaves to people. But if you zoom out a little bit, you see this. all of this is happening inside a context of stability and permanence. Permanence um, expressed through cycles. Yeah. There's something also wonderful about the tenderness and love that comes through in that Rilke poem. Like, whoever is holding all these shooting stars and all dying souls and all withering leaves loves it all. I know, that's why I love Aurelius so much. I get the same sense, the same tone from him. How so? Yeah, things falling. It's not that we're being punished for something, it's just that it's part of nature, part of the the good natured <laughs> nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird because it does seem uh, it does seem like there's love involved in that process. It's hard to say why, but so many people feel that love when they're out in nature. Yeah. Can't be... It's not exactly cerebral. Yeah, there's no evidence to say that what is moving this is love. We're kind of jumping to the ending, the love that moved the sun and other stars, but mm. this can kind of be some foreshadowing. What is this source of love that seems to be at the center of the universe? Let's ask that you know, when we get to the end. Mm-hmm. Another form of falling, I suppose, is exile. Cacciaguida spends a lot of time thinking and talking about Florence. In Canto 17, it's weird because in Canto 16, he talks a lot about Florence as if to make Dante homesick. And then in Canto 17, he says, something bad's going to happen to you, Dante. Dante says to his great-great-grandfather, while I was still in Virgil's company, both on the mountain that heals our souls and in our descent to the world of the dead, some things were said to me about my future. Dire words. And although I am ready to face whatever slings and arrows that may come, still my mind would be more at ease if I knew what fortune awaited me. The foreseen arrow flies more slowly, which is a beautiful little aphorism. And then Cachaguita says, As Hippolytus, because of his treacherous, unholy stepmother, had to leave Athens, so shall you be forced to depart from Florence. This has been willed, is being actively sought, and soon will be done by the one who plots it in the place where Christ is bought and sold daily. Public outcry will attach the blame, as usual, to the injured party, but vengeance will be testimony to the truth that meets it out. You will leave behind all that you love, and that will be the arrow first to be shot from exile's bow. You will come to know how salty is the taste of another man's bread, and how hard the path leading up and down another man's stairs. 
should pause there and emphasize how beautiful this language is, right? I love the bread. It's uh, such an ordinary image, right? It's a thing that we eat every day and take for granted. But even in those everyday quotidian things, right, yeah. there's going to be salt. Everything will be slightly sour. Yeah. I heard or read, I don't remember where I know this from, but apparently back in the day, I don't know if this is still true, the bread that was made in Florence, didn't really they didn't really use salt. So apparently that was a common complaint of people who traveled out of Florence. Where in the world did you hear that? I can't remember. One of the commentaries I was reading on Dante. They couldn't stand how salty bread outside Florence was. Hmm. Um, I also love this, uh, how hard the path leading up and down another man's stairs. Again, very quotidian, very domestic little image here. Think of leaving the house every day and coming back up and down stairs. We were reading this while we were staying in this uh, Airbnb, and we were always commenting on why we, why are we getting so tired walking up these stairs? <laughs> Yeah. Of course, we were at 10,000 feet above sea level, but anyway, it was just funny that we were having the same experience <laughs> out of town stairs. <laughs> we don't have stairs. We don't walk up and down stairs in our house, so atrophied muscles. But it goes to show you that you, you live a life, it's like Proust's idea of habit or custom. You build a life on habits and customs, and as soon as the, even the least significant of those are disrupted, it can suddenly feel like a huge jolt. Everything that you used to do on autopilot, you can't, you have to relearn. Cachaguida mm -hmm. continues, but the heaviest burden on your shoulders will be the companions, wicked and foolish, with whom you will fall into that veil. Utterly ungrateful, mad, disloyal, they will turn against you, but soon it will be they and not you who will have red faces. How they turn out will be the final proof of their brutishness, and it will be honorable for you to make yourself a party of one. For some reason, I like that a lot. The proof of Dante's success in that endeavor is the poem he wrote has no companions. There's nothing else like the Divine Comedy in mm -hmm. terms of form, theology, imagination, vision, mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. But also interesting that in the book, compared to in his life, he does have guides. He gives himself several guides. It's true. Cachaguida does make that wonderfully charming prophecy. There's a little kid there. You don't know him yet, but he'll grow up to be a really kind, generous man who will host you. He's only like nine or something now, but this boy slash man gets a wonderfully nice no, thank you. He gets immortalized in this poem by Dante. Apparently how kind he was to Dante in exile. I know, that must have felt like a real honor to to be represented in that way in, a, yeah. in an epic poem with... Um, Dante's forefather foreseeing their friendship. Yeah. Beautiful. I know. So Dante is told, be a sect of one. And he replies and says, one of the things he says in response to his great-great-grandfather is, I have learned things that, if I repeated them, would leave a sour taste in many mouths. Yet, if I should be a timid friend to truth, I fear that I would not live on among those who will call this time of ours ancient. Oh, that's good. There's so many goosebumps moments where Dante, where you realize that you are living Dante's fortune tellings. <laughs> you are the object of his vision and imagination. Yes. He's thinking about you and me, literally you and me, addressing us, writing this for us. Mm -hmm. I love that. A timid friend to truth. Is that what it said, friend? Yeah. A timid. Don't be a timid friend to truth, because if you are, you won't live on among those who will call this time of ours ancient, so you won't live on among future people. Yeah, you know, whether it's your goal to be immortalized in literature or in whatever thing you do, it's it's a gorgeous mantra to have for your own life. Don't be a timid friend to truth, right? Don't take risks. And Dante is told that by doing so, he will garner the scorn and opprobrium of those around him. 
Yeah. Yeah, be live boldly and do the things you want to do. Why do you think fame, the pursuit of fame, isn't condemned in this part? You would expect, you know, we saw people wanting fame in the Inferno. Mm-hmm. You would expect this very saintly ancestor of Dante to be like, don't, don't worry about fame. Don't pursue fame. Fame is nothing. Fame is shallow. Fame is ephemeral. But he and Dante seem to agree that the desire to live on through your writings is... Can be noble. Okay, well, expand on that. Can be. Well, there's a difference between self-glorifying fame and leaving a legacy, a positive legacy, right? He wants to have a positive influence on... Yeah, he wants to bring the torch of truth forward through the generations. Exactly. So, you know, of course, there's there's some ego involved in any such endeavor, but I think if your heart's in the right place and you really are just... If you're having generous feelings about existence and that you want to share and think that maybe other people could benefit from, then I think that's a noble pursuit. It is centered on the I, on the self. He says, I fear that I would not live on among those. So his fear is that if, I, if I'm if i disloyal to the truth, I won't live on. Not that He doesn't say the truth won't live on. There is an, an ego element there. Right. I mean, and yeah, that goes back to kind of the idea of a legacy. We all want to leave behind a, a positive legacy. and Isn't this a kind of inflation? I mean, kind of ego inflation? Like most things worthy of contemplation, it has a good and a bad side, a right and a wrong side. We all can leave a legacy in different ways, right? Some of us do it in a not public way, but he happened to be a public figure. And of course, in his case, with his profession of writing, it would be a public legacy. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's not right for everybody. Couldn't it be? Well, I don't think so. I mean, there's Some fame. people live quiet lives happily. and But they deserve legacies, don't they? Well, they do, but, you know, they do within their families. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're they leave behind a legacy in their family that might live on for many, many generations. Which is good. That's it's not a sinful thing to aspire to. Oh, no, it's a very good thing. I'm reminded of The Striving in the Iliad, which is a book you and I both love. And for them, you know, there was no really concretized sense of heaven, certainly not like Dante, a paradise that you actually go to. So their version of positive immortality was reputation and the spoils of war, but a kind of reputation that would live on after they died. Hmm. noble songs would be sung about them mm-hmm. for many, many years to come. Mm-hmm. This is the equivalent of a kind of Christian salvation for a person like Achilles. And I think his desire for that, his striving for that is noble and should be, and should not be chastised sneeringly by... Yeah, because you know, it, does, it has a positive effect on your life if you want to leave a positive... I use that word again, legacy. <laughs> you know? Then you're going to try your best. So that's a good thing. Legacy is good. It motivates you in a good way. It's a better word than fame because legacy seems to connote more substance to it. Like Yeah, that you're giving something to future content. generations. There's content there. Mm-hmm. Whereas fame is just people know your name. Yeah. And I wonder too if Dante's desire for to live on through literature is because he was lonely. He was exiled. What else does he have? Yeah. He d- he has to look for, you know, he has to look towards future friends and family right. and companions because he has none. Yeah, that's right. He has to seek his family in. In us, in future readers. In us, that's right. 
They see many wonderful things that we sadly have to skip over for the sake of time, like words being formed out of stars in the sky and then dissolved, a giant eagle being formed out of souls, shining souls, kind of like, uh, I don't know, some kind of weird celestial synchronized swimming or something. They form this eagle, and then the eagle's beak starts to even move up and down, and we're told who is in the the pupil of the eye of the eagle. It happens to be David, the author of the Psalms. The souls that make up the eagle's eyebrow, it's you were saying something to me the other day about how, what was it? This is all pre... Where does Dante get these ideas from, these images? Oh, yeah. I was thinking when I when I was reading about the creation of the world later on, I thought, how in the world, if you've never watched a movie or seen like really intense special effects, how would you ever have envisioned something like that? Mushrooms? Magic mushrooms? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's had he had some substances that he was using i don't know wine i mean there's a reason why wine is praised by every poet and every muse it and other substances access they're they're not the goal themselves but they they i suppose can be portals to should we call it the unconscious the realm from which art emerges Mm, sure so dante did seem to have some kind of And, and you know what plus Maybe the fact that there that he hadn't seen any movies was uh, even more helpful. His imagination wasn't lazy yet. Mm. It wasn't influenced. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't just sit down for two hours with some popcorn and let the special effect effects happen to him, right? Right. He had to dazzle himself. Right. I just can't imagine. Where was he writing this stuff? Like, what did he look like when he was imagining these Whoa. crazy images? Was he sweating? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was he in a trance? Was he laughing out loud at how outrageous all this was? Like, who's going to read this? This is insane. I know. In uh, Canto 18, we're told something similar to what we're told over and over again. Beatrice says to Dante, turn around now and listen, for paradise is not in my eyes alone. <laughs> the mom... A mom talking to her son, like, I know you love me. I know you think I'm great, but <laughs> there's a whole world out there, Dante. He's so obsessed with her. Turn around. I am not God. He can't, He doesn't seem to be aware that she is not God. I know. And there's so many mother mother and infant images in this poem, aren't there? Oh, yeah. We'll get so to some really good ones later. So many infants nursing. And he himself seems to want to be Beatrice's infant. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she is... Way superior to him, wiser, and she knows more and is taking care of him. Is it worth pathetically armchair psychologizing him for 30 seconds? What is it about him or all of us? What element inside all of us is it that wants to be mothered? And shouldn't we outgrow this? I have, I have no answers, but let's just call it infantilization. Is, is there a positive version of this? Is it always bad? Because Dante's self-infantilization in this canticle, in this third of the Divine Comedy, is quite conspicuous. Mm-hmm. And there I are other mean, moments in the poem where he advertises his character flaws, over-sympathizing with lying sinners in hell, um, announcing that he will have to spend some time on the terrace of the proud in purgatory. Is this another example of that, or or is this a kind of like dissolution back into the cosmic mother? I think so. Because we return to the image of Mother Mary at the end and think about it. If you're exiled and you're homesick, you know, you're going to be thinking about your very first home, your mother, right? 
somebody homesick, it's not surprising that there are so many mother images. I mean, even if he, I don't know what kind of relationship the writer had with his own mom, but seems more like a universal mother, right? Yeah. Source of life, source of love, tenderness. Some degree of that, I think, is inevitable and permanent. We, when, As Lear says, when we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. We wail and cry. We, It's a separation from a prior unity that, I, that was better, that was more comfortable, that was safer, that was, that yeah, was, that was unified. <laughs> whether you have a good mom or not, I mean, everyone uh, grows in a womb, you know what I mean? And that... That natural part of it is can only be described as a kind of love, right? The womb? Yeah. Even if you don't end up having a good relationship with your mother, nature itself, you know, is nurturing you and yeah. and growing you. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up Shakespeare because it made me remember when we talked about Macbeth with all of the uh, yeah, yeah. infant and nursing images too. And this sure has a different feel to it. Or does it? This sounds, what am I trying to say? Um, this sounds like a kind of intellectual cop-out or laziness, but reading a lot of Taoist stuff lately and, and Jung, you know, who emphasized that everything has its opposite. And Emerson, that compensation essay, you know, the rifle has its kickback. So every virtue has a core, not a corresponding vice, but there's a version of every virtue that is a vice. There's a kind of every beauty that is ugliness. Everything has its counterpart. Mm -hmm. So in Macbeth, it's like those those weird sisters are a kind of maternal... Here in Paradise, we have Beatrice, Lucy, Mary, you know, all these women. Matilda. Picarda, welcoming him back into this primal, it seems like, eternal unity. Macbeth sought something like that. Don't you think? Like, he wanted otherworldly knowledge, but it was in the bogs and the swamps of... That's what he had available to him. Yeah, as epitomized by the witches. So there are... He too wants to see the future. And that's exactly right. Like Dante. That's right. The the, uh, foreseen arrow flies slower. So the desire to reunite with the kind of archetypal eternal feminine can be good, it can be bad. You know, it's... Right. Like I say, it sounds like an intellectual cop-out, but life is... (laughs) I am pontificating about life. Nuanced? It is, though. You know, it's not It's not a simple thing to live in the world. No. It sure is exciting reading this book, though, as a painter. There's so many things I want to paint. Mm. So many. And also looking up art inspired by the Divine Comedy is very exhilarating. Oh, yeah. In Canto 21, we learn that we can't know the why of everything that will happen. Dante asks, why were you, out of all the souls that I see here shining in front of me, why were you the one that came down to greet me? And Dante's told, you can't know. I know, which is so interesting. Even in paradise, right? Where everything should be, where you'd think everything would be perfect because you're happy there. So things would have to be perfect, right? (laughs) But even there. Yeah, there can't be any lack. Yeah, even there, mystery is still very much uh, a key element to happiness. The soul says, for what you ask is hidden away in the abyss of the eternal law, cut off from the vision of every created being. And when you return to the world of mortals, report this to them, so they will not presume to move their feet toward a goal such as this. The mind which shines here is like smoke on earth. Consider then how it could do down there what it cannot even when assumed to heaven. What kind of lesson do you think there is to be learned from this passage for our for our lives? 
Well, I just think that it's what we wish to know most about existence, we can never know. Why are we here? What should we do? Where to find meaning? How to behave? Some some surface level answers we, we can find. What is beauty? Why does it seem to matter to us? Where does art come from? Where do we go after we die? We can't know these things, and we'll never know. So, and, But the weird thing is that you're supposed to keep asking, because everyone knows that being curious is kind of the source of joy. Yeah, um, something that Jung said that I'm reminded of now. He said, a life without inner contradictions is only half a life. So we can never know, but we must always try to know. Mm. And if we say to ourselves, well, I can never know, so I'll give up knowing, that's only half a life. Mm-hmm. Giving up the pursuit of knowing, that's only half a life. And if we say to ourselves, I'm, I must know, I demand to know, I will find out, that's also only half a life, bound to disappoint us and frustrate us. Yeah. So you need a middle ground. You need to know that there are some things you'll never know, but you're going to feel your way towards answers anyway. Well, when we were in, this might seem like I'm going way off track here, but when we were in place we were in. Where was that again? Brianhead? <laughs> Brianhead. There's this little town nearby called Parowan, and there's this place called the Parowan Gap where there are petroglyphs. These petroglyphs, people believe, were carved by the Fremont Indians many, many hundreds of years ago, possibly, you know, a thousand or so. Uh, lots of spirals, many spirals. Mm-hmm. And I was very taken with these spirals. I feel like a lot of synchronicity happened on this trip. We were reading about the spiraling cosmos in the Paradiso, and I was seeing these spirals. And this is, I think, one thing of the one of the many, many, many things that the spiral image can mean that we don't necessarily need to make linear progress. Like we we have times in our lives where we go up like a kind of arc. We feel like we're making progress, we're gaining answers, but then there will, correspondingly, as Emerson would say, come a time where we feel like we're stagnating or we're going backwards or we don't. We have more questions now than we ever have, you know what I mean? Or we let, we're even more aware of how little we know. But then this will inevitably inevitably lead back up to another time in our lives where we feel like, oh, I know, I, I am making progress. This is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's this little plaque there that explains some of the symbolism of these petroglyphs and apparently for the Fremont Indians and the Paiute Indians also that settled in this area later, the spiral was a symbol for migration. Isn't that interesting? It's a symbol for migration. You'd think that a symbol for migration would be we were here and then we went here. A line. A line. Straight line, yeah. No, it's much wiser to have a spiral. Like, it's a kind of progress, I suppose, but not really. I know. Like, distance doesn't mean, or distance or length of time or anything doesn't mean that you're farther away. It just means that you're... Yeah. You'll, You'll always be in orbit around the same questions. Yeah. The same cravings, the same desires. Maybe you get stronger. Maybe the orbit, you know, eventually can encompass more territory, more experience, more wisdom. Maybe the peaks of your joy get bigger and the valleys of your despair get bigger. But migration through life is more circular than linear. Mm -hmm. Tree rings. (laughs) Throw that out there. Tree rings. That's great. <laughs> also, they there were ladders, petroglyphs. Some of these petroglyphs were ladders. Yeah, those are cool. And this is, you know, kind of obvious symbol. Apparently, the, either the Paiute Indians or the Fremont Indians believed that heaven was not far away. It was so close above our heads that you would just need a ladder or a tree could get you there. It was like right there. So there were these ladders carved on the, on the rock. Um, and in 
Canto 22, we get this ladder, this image of this ladder with start with souls going up and down it like magpies in a tree. I know, but honestly, if you're in a place, in a really dark sky place, and you're looking up at the stars, they seem very close, like you could just reach up. Yeah, that's right. Especially with shooting stars, they see, they appear to like hit the earth sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I realized, sorry, but we spent a lot more time outdoors those past two weeks, and being exposed to the cycles of the sun, the day, the night. And if you live in a house and work in an office and drive in a car, you can and artificially decide when it is light and when it is dark. You're, you're losing something important about what humans have always been, which is subject to the conditions of the sun and the moon. That's very true. And the terrifying darkness and the brilliant, brilliant sun. You forget that you're a part of a some type of order. Okay, um, in Canto 22, they, they're so far out from Earth now, like the Voyager satellite, Don, Beatrice says to Dante, can you turn around and look at Earth? There's that, uh, I don't know, one of those satellites, the Voyager satellite or something, took this famous photograph of Earth, and it's like this tiny speck. Never saw that. Yeah, it's kind of famous photograph. This photograph taught the 20th century what this thought experiment taught Dante, which is that the petty squabbles that here we have on Earth don't, don't matter. Mm. You know, the Cold War doesn't matter. Fight between the Guelphs and Ghibliens doesn't matter. It's an important reminder from time to time. And He's, his being um, slightly farther away from home doesn't matter. Yeah. He's only a few miles away. A few miles away, yeah, where uh, eventually he'll be light years away. Mm-hmm. He says, my eyes returned to all the seven spheres, each one of them. And I smiled when I saw how paltry was this little globe of ours. He says, at this spot of earth that spawns such violence, I saw it all. The rivers, the hills in which they rise, while I was wheeled around with the eternal twins. Then I turned my eyes back to the beautiful eyes. <laughs> it's a, a wonderful moment for me because he's like, I turned to the left and I saw literally everything. I saw it all. Uh, but I turned back to the right to where the beautiful eyes were. So it's like existence itself versus Beatrice's eyes. And yet again, her eyes seem to win. But you know, I, I feel that way when I look at the ocean. I have that same feeling how paltry this little earth is. Yeah. Or not earth itself, but, you know, our goings on. Yeah. It's like, oh, there are things that are so much bigger than my little problems. Yeah. And it's a very comforting feeling. You know, that part you just read, I looked at all of existence and then I looked at Beatrice. It doesn't actually seem that crazy because she is of nature, you know what I mean? She is part of that nature made of the same materials. So why shouldn't she be as amazing as all of those planets and stars? And Yeah, we learn later in the poem that it's all kind of, it's a very Vedic, Bhagavad Gita-esque vision of oneness at the end. So it's not even really possible to separate her from the rest of it. Exactly. In Canto 23, he meets Mary, the mother of Christ, who says, I am angelic love who circles so much circling. There's so much circling, in, especially in these later books. She says, I am angelic love who circles around the high joy that breathes from the womb that once was the inn that sheltered our desire. Now, I love how yeah. even the language, the syntax, circles around its subject. Mm-hmm. Subject of this sentence is Jesus, but she doesn't get right to the point. She's spiraling around naming him wrapping him in metaphors, right? So she says, I am angelic love who circles around that high joy that breathes from the womb that once was the inn 
that sheltered our desire, with a capital D, desire, Christ literally there being named desire. Now, we could say that that's a metaphor, that he's being metaphorically called desire, but in a poem like this, I have to wonder if it is a metaphor. Yeah, desire is the main word of the book. And I mean, I bet it's the main word, the most frequently occurring yeah. noun. I should Google it. Because I mean, maybe except for obvious ones like stars or souls or something like that. But yeah, desire mm-hmm. is going to be right at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. How inaccurate would I be to suspect that Christ isn't desire, but desire is Christ, if that distinction makes any sense? Do you mean that desire saves and is the main driving force of everything that keeps us reaching forward and that has kept Dante moving through all of hell and purgatory? That's what Christ's own mother says that she gave birth to. That's gorgeous. It's so gorgeous. This whole poem is just a big love letter, if you can call it a love letter. It's way more than that. It's like a massive love. Wentworth's love letter. You pierce my soul. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's a massive love declaration to a desire, the act of wanting something. I have known this for a long time about myself, that that's my greatest joy in life, is wanting something, being curious about something, having something to reach out towards in the darkness. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, what else do you have, right? Of course, no, you have family, et cetera, et cetera. But you want things, you want things for a family. We have kids. Right. I want things for them. I desire things for them. I want things. You want to keep hugging them. This isn't just a static, like, <laughs> now I've arrived and I... Yeah, you want to get to know them more. You want to see how they grow up. You want to see what thing they say next that's or never, don't want to see. <laughs> and that, Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that impulse is never going to end. Mm-hmm. Faust in uh, Faust, <laughs> Faust in Goethe. Goethe in Faust says, "From from desire, I'm I leap to satisfaction, and from satisfaction, I leap to desire." Yeah, exactly. And Samuel Johnson says the exact same thing in one of his Rambler essays. He says, "We live not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope." Mm-hmm. I love that so much. It's so true because you only have to be about four years old and our son to know. (laughs) I feel like he realized it so early on in life that it's the wanting something that is exciting and not the getting it. I hope he's realized. I don't know if he's realized that he seems to me to be more cramped by his cravings than praising them. (laughs) Well, Our daughter wonderfully has the skill of she she can be quite content mm -hmm. more than me. I, I often marvel at her ability to enjoy what she has. Yeah. That's a real skill, you know. That's a real gift and skill. Yeah, I mean. That I'm learning from her, to be honest. Desire, it, that the kind of desire we're talking about, I don't think, is the same thing as not being dissatisfied and not being content with what you have. You know what I mean? Do you mean that there are objects of d- desire that are pointless, pathetic, counterproductive, shallow? Like candy, the desire for candy. I mean, yeah, they, they, they're kids. They have the desire for candy, and they always will. But Yeah, because how much can you bleed out of candy, really? How much I, meaning? I think this is quite relevant to Dante. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. I, I have more questions about this poem than I ever have. But I seem to get the impression that the souls in Inferno also desire things. And desire is good. Desire is a divine impulse. Mm-hmm. It's but, the object, of course. But that's right. They pointed it in the wrong direction. They, they, yeah. they, their aim was askew and 
And they squandered this divine energy on, quote-unquote, candy, things that didn't matter. Exactly. Or things that were harmful. Exactly. And in Paradiso, we see people, you know, the, the souls that started floating up towards Dante and Beatrice, like fish up yeah, towards food. That. Yeah, They desired to to meet Virgil and, and have another person to, um, to love and share their love with. Yeah, even the souls there. It's not just Dante that keeps desiring, but it's the souls that are already there. And there it's a good thing. It's good to want to know more about people and to have more things to love about them. Always to look for more to love. You like this little bit. Do you want to read it in Canto 24 and say why you liked it so much? Oh yeah, this was very interesting. I saw a fire come forth of such joy that it left none there of greater brightness. Three times it revolved around Beatrice with a song so divine that my fantasy cannot recreate it for me. Therefore my pen skips and I do not write of it. For our imagination, much less our speech, has too bright a palette for such subtle folds. It, it surprised me. It seems like it should have been the opposite, right? Heaven was so over the top that our small imaginations couldn't describe it. Which does happen. Which does happen. But then it also has subtleties. You know, it's got, it's, this paradise has the yin and the yang. <laughs> It's got opposites. Right, right. It can be majestic, but it can also be so subtle that our imaginations are too colorful and clumsy to to be that elegant. Yeah, there, there are shades of there are shades of nuance and color and form that are so minute and finely tuned that we couldn't discern them. Right. It's not just one bright light. Yeah, it gets like, brighter and brighter. Yeah, it's like all the different shades of green in a forest, you know. I mean, you would need, I'm thinking of Rousseau's amazing The Dream painting, use something like 38 different greens. Mm. He tried to get to the at the nuance yeah. <laughs> of all those shades, but yeah, his imagine was too bright as well, to, to, um, he had too bright a palette for such subtle differences in green colors. Yeah, in a real forest, there's not 36, there's 36,000 shades of green. Yeah, that doesn't mean that the attempt isn't honorable and beautiful. In Canto 24, this is when Peter, so he's nearing the the top or the new center, which we'll get to. He's nearing the end of his journey. And before he can be let into the Imperium or Prima Mobile or the Rose, whatever we want to call it, he has to pass certain tests, very much like a college exam. Peter, James, and John ask him to define faith, hope, and love. Peter asks him to define what is faith, which is fitting because it's Peter who denied Christ and showed a kind of lack of faith there at the end. I don't know if we should go into the answers because like I've already said, to me, they're quite dissatisfying and irrelevant. I know, it's so funny. It's always like that heavenly person is always like, now you understand. Now you have the answer to your question. And I'm like, does the no, pilgrim it's, understand? <laughs> it's more confusing than ever. Peter says, what is faith? And Dante kind of like, like a goody-goody in a classroom, you can kind of see him sitting up straight in his chair. Lisa Simpson's like, I know the answer to this one. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He basically quotes scripture, and Peter says, very good. And by substance, you mean this, and by evidence, you mean this, and it's all quite clear. And of course, it's not. It's not clear at all. But I like the, the coin image, though. Faith is like a coin. If it's not in your pocket, then it's useless. That was cool. Uh, yeah, that made sense. Yeah. Peter says, do you have faith? And Dante says, yes, I have so bright and round that there is no question about its mintage. A wonderful, reveals a wonderful evolution 
and development of character. This is the person who at the very beginning was lost in a dark wood and didn't know how to find his way. And now he says, I got faith in my pocket, bright golden coin. I'm ready to go. You know, he's, he's really grown. Yeah. Which I like, you know, and even if you read the notes, it's like there have been scholars and theologians for centuries who have tried to define these terms. What is the substance of things hoped for? What does that phrase mean? Substance of what? What substance? Mm-hmm. The evidence of things not seen. What is what evidence? Dante says in this canto, I have proofs of my faith. But does he? It seems so in the context of other angels who are telling him, you can't know. It would be like trying to hold smoke. So don't worry about it. Go back and tell those people on earth that they can't know. This whole yeah. acad- overly academic approach, I'm nailing the answers, getting into heaven is a matter of studying and passing a test well, seems very... Couldn't he be arguing that there's certain types of knowledge that you can have that's not the same as a knowledge on earth? Well, or even on earth. There's things you can know without being able to explain why you know them. Or showing people the evidence or the proof or the substance. Without being able to. That's what that, that's what I mean. Yeah. I'd much rather have Dante say, well, Peter, I don't know what faith is. I feel it. Like beauty or art or love. It's like it's real. I know it. Mm-hmm. I have it. Words fail me. And then Peter would say, yes, it was a trick question. The answer is we can't answer that question. Please come in. That would have kind of like clicked for me in a more, I'm not going to assume that I am wiser than the poem, but I just find these moments quite frustrating. Well, he and says he has proofs, right? I don't know. say what kind. <laughs> he has his own personal proof. But even that kind of rankles me. Can you, can you prove... To prove you love me. Do I have proof that I love you? Uh, it's not a it's not a relevant level of analysis for this topic. I don't know. Maybe I'll feel differently the next time I read it. Yeah. He meets Adam and he asks Adam some very interesting questions like, How long were you in Eden for before you fell? And what language did you speak when you were in Eden? Dante's obsessed with language, so of course he'd ask that. Adam says, well, my son, the tasting of the tree was not in itself the cause of such a long exile. No, but only trespassing beyond the mark. Do you have any thoughts about what that means? He doesn't elaborate. What mark? He crossed a certain limit. I wonder if the sin was in his desire. Well, that's very interesting because Dante desires to know. Peter wants Dante to prove how much Dante knows. And here we have Adam saying, don't trespass beyond the mark. So it does reinforce this suspicion that I'm onto something to say that we shouldn't we shouldn't need to define faith and hope and love so rigorously. We can't know what these things are. We can feel them. We can believe in them. We can want to perpetuate them. But I don't know. I don't know. I'll shut up. <laughs> no. He wasn't supposed to know as much as God, and he desired to know as much as God to know. His desire went beyond the mark, maybe. Eating the apple itself, or the fruit itself, wasn't the sin so much as him letting his desire go beyond. Like Ulysses and like Dante. Yeah, exactly. Isn't Dante guilty of this? Adam says, The tongue that I spoke had become extinct before Nimrod's people turned their attention to their utterly unaccomplishable task. For nothing ever produced by reason lasts forever. Yeah, how cool is that? It's wonderful. So why are we reasoning out which is why the substance of things hoped for, which, the evidence of things not seen. Yeah, which is why those uh, doctrinal yeah, passages are not as lasting in our memory. They're so inadequate. 
Adam says, it is natural that man speaks a language, but whether you speak this one or that one, nature lets you decide which suits you best. I I wrote, let the book speak to you however is natural to you. Yeah. Nature lets you decide which suits you best. I mean, if you ask ten, ten Dante lovers, what does this poem mean to you, they, they won't answer in the same way. Yeah. Everybody um, naturally gravitates towards certain things. Right. And finds their own way of expressing their love for things. Yeah. I'm very surprised by Adam's answer to the question, how long did you live in Eden before the fall? I lived on top of the high mountain that rises from the sea, pure until my fall, from the first hour to one after the sun crosses the quadrant, six hours in all. I have nothing really to say about this other than it strikes me as a very specific. Dante wanted this fact in the poem. What is Dante trying to say? Dante invents this. Dante could have said, Dante could have put any answer into Adam's mouth, but he chose... Three days, three years, three, yeah. <laughs> 33. Three something. <laughs> six hours. Well, I don't know what specifically the six no, that but signifies. No, but just like but, not even a day. Like, But the brevity of it is, yeah. is very uh, interesting. Especially when you consider Dante being exiled and there, you know, and the general tone of homesickness. Mm, say more about that. What do you mean? You know, Adam and Eve weren't in their first home for more than six hours. Instant exile. So the, hu- the yeah. human race has, from more or less the, the the beginning, hour number six of existence, been in exile. Is mm-hmm. this what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's a human condition, which is why we're responding to the poem so much because it's about us. They, Dante sees a central light in the distance now. And when I get to this point in the poem, I always think of a movie projector. He sees a point of light from which everything seems to be emanating. And it's a reminder that all the souls he's met up until now weren't really where he thought they were. They were being projected there by the center, very much like a movie projector. I had no idea how to envision that. He was talking to the images on the screen, but they're not really on the screen. They come from this, this center. This is another such weird thing. Like, without having seen a movie ever, how would he have envisioned this thing? Well, I mean, mean, you see candles and shadows and mirrors, yeah. But it is a wildly inventive image of God and the universe. He gives a last praise of Beatrice. How did you react to the surprise of Beatrice being replaced by yet another guide at the very end. Oh, I St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I found that very odd. I was glad to be surprised. You know, I'm always happy when the surprise comes along. <laughs> I don't know what in the world it could mean. Who is this saint to me <laughs> or to him? You know what I mean? It's very a weird, odd. Yeah, it's a weird choice. I mean, if you read the notes, there's like, well, he has this to do with that and there are theological reasons and he represents this and that. Again, those are less important to me than just the feel of it, the, the personality of it, this kindly yeah. old saintly man. An old fatherly figure. An old fatherly figure is now the one. And Beatrice kind of goes up to her seat in the balcony then in the stadium of the Rose. and Yeah, it's kind of like the, the, the circle's complete. We've had mother figures and now there's a father. Yeah. And it feels very, like, wholesome, you know what I mean? Right. You wanted to read this little bit where he finally at last declares himself defeated in his attempts to praise Beatrice and her beauty. Oh, this totally brought me to tears when I read it. Just because having come from so, so, so many hundreds of lines that are all basically for Beatrice, I just felt like the fatigue and the, the weariness. It doesn't land in the way that it would... If you don't read the whole poem first because of that word fatigue, he's exhausted himself trying. And he's exhausted us. 
<laughs> in a good way, though. In a good way. Okay. If all that has been said of her up to now were gathered together in one song of praise, it would be too little for this occasion. The beauty that I saw not only surpasses all we know of beauty, but I truly believe that only its maker fully enjoys it. At this point, I declare myself defeated. More than any poet, tragic or comic, has ever been baffled by his theme. For like the sun beating on the feeblest eyes, so too the memory of that sweet smile separates me from my own mind. From the first day that I saw her face in this life, until this vision of her now, my pursuit of her in song has never ceased. <laughs> but now I must desist in my pursuit, no longer following her beauty in poems. <laughs> but like every artist who has reached his limit, and so I leave her to a <laughs> And so I leave her to a greater heralding than my horn could provide as I draw my difficult subject onto its close. You feel the fatigue. You know you feel the incredible weight of his desire crushing him in that moment. He's like, I have tried for so long. Yeah. Not just tried, but I have done it, you know? I wrote all of this. And not just this book, but I'm sure hundreds yeah. of poems before that. For her. For her. And he's finally, like, declaring himself defeated. Like, it's impossible. Yeah, it's wonderful. He doesn't declare a victory. It's like, well. No, defeat. Yeah. This doesn't feel like defeat. You come to, this is Canto 30, you know what I mean? And the paradise. It doesn't feel like defeat. But then... But it also does. I mean, it also does because she's better than language could describe. Right. And yeah, it's it's a beautiful moment of humility. He's so human in this moment. Rilke said in a poem, our task is to be continuously defeated by ever larger things. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's good. Our task. Perfect quote. <laughs> it's great. Our task is to be continuously defeated by ever larger things. That's what we want. That's what we need. So this defeat is a victory because it's a defeat. You know, he, he's, he chose a subject worth giving his whole life for. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, if I had read this passage independent of the re whole rest of the book, I would have thought, okay, yeah, it's just another guy, you know, obsessed with somebody's beauty. But um, it's, it's not just it's that. So, it's so much more than that. When he talks of her beauty, you know, only its maker fully enjoys. You know, it, it seems like he's saying only her maker fully appreciates and understands her beauty. And not just hers, but everyone's. That's right. God God created his creation so he could look at it. Because <laughs> it's beautiful. And only he truly understands. Yeah. So many people we love, and it would be impossible to say why we love them. You could mention some of the reasons that are like obvious, but... Yeah. And it's worth trying to articulate this love, but it's never going to get to the heart of it. It might take you decades. It might take hundreds of songs. It might take an epic poem, right. and you will, in the end, be defeated. Yeah. But that's good. To our great delight. Because then that means you've done what you needed to do. Yeah. You're defeated by a noble, noble goal. There's this wonderful river of light that he passes, and he drinks it with his eyes. I think he literally bends down and... And instead of drinking it with his mouth, so this is evocative Lethe and Yenoya at the end of Purgatory. He drinks it with his eyes. It fills up his eyes. I know. Crazy, eaves right? of his eyelids? There's eaves on his eyes. <laughs> it's really weird. 
and no sooner had my eyelids eaves drunk it in than the water seemed to me to have made its long course into a circle. There's another circle. Life is not a linear journey, you know? I know. All these rivers seem to have sort of carried us to this point, and then the river turns into a circle. Mm -hmm. And then he describes this place that is like several things. One thing he describes it as like a lake surrounded by tall hills. Another thing he describes it as is a rose, a celestial rose, which has this kind of wonderfully spiraling pattern down to its center, you know? Yeah, very true. He describes it as a city. This really uh, helped me understand the Dali painting. What Dali painting? <laughs> Inspired by the Divine Comedy. It's just a rose hanging out in the sky. There's a rose. He keeps on calling it a rose, and I, I think it's a metaphor, but he uses it so often that it's almost as if that's... And the souls are kind of landing in it like bees, you know? It's almost as if there is a rose in space where... Yeah, it sure seems literal. Where people live. Yeah. And they all have a specific prescribed place. They don't just sit in random places. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's something like, I won't flip to the notes that explain this, but it's something like Old Testament people are on one half of the rose and everyone after that gets to sit on the other half of the rose and women and men are organized in a certain way. And of course, there's hierarchical tiers. Well, it's all very orderly, but, but circular too. So it's not like... It's, it's linear and circular, which, again, takes me back to the spiral. Yeah. And that order doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel hierarchical. No, it because... It feels very communal and, and comforting. Everything is in its right place. And they all have equal access to the center. Yeah. I don't... Uh, sports stadiums are kind of like my hell, so I hate to compare it to this, but... Oh, well... <laughs> But it gives them equal access to what's happening in the middle. Mm. So it does seem very democratic in that sense. No one is excluded from the center, even though they all have a particular place to sit in this rose. It just made me think of the, um, the comfort that is in form, poetic form. All those souls are in their right place, just like the words are in their right place. I know, but a rose is better than... The rose is the perfect metaphor, because it... It's totally organic and seemingly spontaneous, you know? Right. It doesn't think about its structure. It's not too overdetermined about its structure. So. But I like that seemingly, seemingly unstructured. But then if you look closely, it seems like math. Yeah, and in a way it kind of is math. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in this rose, he says, oh, look, there's Mary, and there's Ruth, and there's Sarah, and there's Adam, and there's Eve. And there's John the Baptist, and there's Peter, and there's James, and she's naming all the people who are in this rose. You know, kind of who's who of the righteous. Mm -hmm. Canto 33. St. Bernard prays to the Virgin Mary, and the language that he uses to pray to her is full of paradox and oxymoron. Virgin mother, your own son's daughter, humblest and most exalted of creatures, fixed point of heaven's eternal plan. I love this. Um, Mary is a fusion of opposites. It goes back to Emerson's compensation and the yin-yang. There's no rifle without its kickback. Mary is Mary, and I think by extension, the kind of people that we should all aspire to be is a fusion of opposites. Well, we can't help but be a fusion of opposites, we but that's right. we can yeah, embrace it. We can't help but be that, and so we shouldn't fight against it. We should aspire to be it in a complete way, yeah. a holistic way. Yeah. St. Bernard prays to Mary and says, please let this pilgrim, I'm paraphrasing, please let this pilgrim, please let this pilgrim with his own eyes 
ascend to the vision of final salvation. I think this means show him God. Mm -hmm. Show him the end and the beginning. Mm -hmm. And what happens next, I mean, (laughs) what happens really for the rest of the canto, you finished this the other night and were so stunned you didn't even want to talk about it. Oh, I didn't want to talk about it. So, I hate to drag you out of your opium dream. It's too sacred for... It does feel that way, doesn't for it? For the microphone. <laughs> it does feel that way, doesn't it? We'll make. Let's take off our shoes and empty our pockets before we start talking about this. I know. It's like, I don't want to know that you know, too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even read the introduction to the last canto because I wanted to be the only one there. It's kind of holy of holies. Do we dare talk about it? I'm tempted to just kind of read it. Read from now to the end. We'll we'll do a lot of reading here. Then she turned her gaze toward the eternal light, into which it cannot be believed another could penetrate with so clear an eye. And I, who was approaching now at last the end of all longing, now intensified as well I ought my burning desire. So his desire gets stronger at the end. St. Bernard smiles and gives him a sign that yes, he should look. Now he's ready to look. For my sight becoming pure and clear was ever more deeply entering the beam of the exalted light that is in itself true. From that moment on, my vision became vaster than our speech, which fails at such sight, as memory too fails at such high excess. Like someone who sees a thing in a dream, and after he wakes, an impression remains, but nothing more returns to his mind, so too am I. I love that present tense, which we don't usually get in the poem. Mm -hmm. So too am I, for the vision has almost wholly faded away. Yet still there drops deep within my heart the sweetness it bore. How interesting. It's so Keats, isn't it? Oh, to a nightingale? Was it a vision or a waking dream? Yeah. Yeah. So what we're getting is a paraphrase of a mostly faded dream. Mm. The snow loses its imprint under the sun, and so when its leaves are blown by the wind, the oracle of the Sibyl was lost. So we're getting wonderful metaphors here, like my speech failed, it was kind of like a dream, and it was like melting snow. What I saw has melted from my mind like snow in the wind, or blown away like leaves. Mm -hmm. And then he says this, O supreme light, so far above all mortal conception, restore to my mind a little of how you appeared to it then. And allow my tongue to have power enough to leave to people yet to be born at least a spark of your luminous glory. For by returning somewhat to my memory and being voiced a little in these lines, the better your triumph will be conceived. He's describing by not describing it. I love this being voiced a little. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is his little, his little tiny attempt to give voice to it. Tiny spark. And this leave to people yet to be born. There's you and me again. I know. I I wrote next to it, me, (laughs) exclamation. I had this amazing, like I said earlier, amazing goosebumps moment where I really just felt Dante's love, you know? Oh, yeah. I really just felt like a friend is giving me this massive gift, even though he would never know me. A bit later, he says this, I saw that it contains, he's describing this light that he looks into, I saw that it contained within its depths, bound by love into one volume, So now it's compared to a book. All that is scattered in pages through the universe, substances, accidents, and their relations fused together, as it were, in such a way that what I speak of is a simple light. 
I believe I saw the universal form of this knot of things, because as I speak of it I feel the joy within me expand. One moment created greater oblivion for me than twenty-five centuries did for the quest that made Neptune marvel at the Argo's shadow. So my mind gazed, completely entranced, still, focused, unmoving, intent, and constantly rekindled by the gazing itself. Whoever is in that light becomes such that it is impossible ever to consent to turn from it to any other sight. For the good that is the object of the will is all gathered into it, and apart from that light all is defective that is perfect there. I mean, so much to say about this, and we're not even at the end yet. Everything is in the center. This is kind of like Krishna, you know, they're all pages, all scattered substances, all fragments, all shards, you and me, we're all there together in this book, bound, tied together, the knot of all things. What is lost isn't lost. You know, we may feel like we're threads all alone, flapping in, in a wind, in a dark wind, little tiny threads, unconnected to anything. But trace us back to our source and we're all together as part of one knot, hmm. one unfrayed thing. Well, I came in the beginning. He was lost in the dark woods. Yes. So this is why he says that like all goods are part of the one good. Many, many ways are part of the one way. It's not really to understand this about existence means that you're never really lost. Hmm. You're always there in the center. Then he says, now my speech will convey even less of what I remember than of an infant who still nurses at his mother's breast, which is so beautiful. It's been in my mind constantly since I read it a few weeks ago. Why am I so captivated by that simile? This Dante's attempt to describe God leaves him reduced to incoherent infant babbling. I know, but he's an infant nursing, so he's literally, I think it's safe to say, experiencing the greatest love right yeah. yeah yeah he knows he doesn't know how to speak it but he knows love i'm going to read you some wordsworth it just came to my mind this is what this is wordsworth's description of a nursing infant i think it's highly relevant wordsworth says this is in the prelude blessed the infant babe nursed in his mother's arms the babe who sleeps upon his mother's breast who when his soul claims manifest kindred with an earthly soul doth gather passion from his mother's eye such feelings pass into his torpid life like an awakening breeze, and hence his mind, even in the first tri trial of its powers, is prompt and watchful, eager to combine, in one appearance, all the elements and parts of the same object, else detached and loath to coalesce. Mm. It's exactly the same impulse and realization yeah. here that yeah. infants... There's, we, can spec we can only speculate who remembers being an infant, but it's the moment before which our psychic and spiritual and emotional lives fragmented. That was perfect unity. And having been a mother who nursed, I know at least what the other side looks like. Does it feel like perfect unity? It does. Nursing, I feel bad for men that they don't know what that's like. It's, <laughs> it's really amazing. There's, there's real magic. And you, you feel so... Um, you feel so happy for your baby, too, mm. knowing that in this moment, everything is perfect for this child. Yeah. The child's perfectly loved and has food and is warm and safe. Yeah. It will never be this happy again. I just love this language thing, too. It's like the, the, the babbling of an infant isn't, 
It's it, it's no, not. No, this is a. It's not lesser than. It's, it's an not, improvement. It's not imperfect. It's a. That's exactly right. It's a kind of return to primal. Um, it's a homecoming. Before language was inadequate, there was the babbling of an infant, which isn't inadequate. It's somehow perfect. Yeah, it's a homecoming to a perfect knowledge of love. And pure, spontaneous, unfiltered, uncerebral, verbal expression of that love. Exactly, yeah. Dante says, And in the profound and clear substance of that high radiance, three rings now appeared, of three colors and equal circumference. So three rings of equal three rings of equal circumference. Two reflected each other as rainbow by rainbow, and a third seemed like fire. Ah, how weak is language in comparison to my conception. So, And then he says, O eternal light, that in yourself alone abide, that alone know yourself and known and knowing, love and smile upon yourself alone. This is clearly Trinity-esque, but it's disembodied. There's no face. There's no human form. It's three rings of light of the same size different color that Dante says knows itself and loves and smiles upon itself. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask you why God at the end of this poem isn't anthropomorphized. Where is God? What is God? I was really worried that the old man with the beard was going to be God. (laughs) I was like, no, please, no. (laughs) Um, Why would that have been less or worse? Oh... It's so limited, somehow. The human form, though very much celebrated in this poem, obviously, is limiting, or is limited. So, the fact that we never get to see the actual form, and especially not in human form, it's a comfort to somebody like me who always wants there to be mystery and more layers to peel back and more secrets to try to uncover. You know what I mean? I love the implication that you can never fully know that source of goodness. You can't fully know God. And that's not a bad thing. You know what I mean? It's more like finding a treasure chest without a bottom. (laughs) Yeah. If suddenly a human form emerged out of this light and started talking, I'd be quite disappointed. Yeah, what words would you give? You can't give the words to God. Is there a human form from which this light is emanating? Or is it just a kind of, um, if you imagine the Big Bang, is Dante just seeing the axis of existence? All of the circling imagery, the love that moved the sun and other stars, the center of the wheel. He's like looking into a black hole. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't even know if anyone could know this, but I don't get the impression of a human-like entity behind this light. Oh, no. I see it as a kind of, these three rings as a kind of axis, a kind of the still point of the turning world, as T.S. Eliot would say in uh, The Four Quartets, the still point of the turning world. This is the center from which everything has emerged. Mm-hmm. Dante's looking at it. Yeah, well, well-oiled machine. <laughs> it, yeah, uh, I mean, not to, no, that sounds reductive. No, it's good. It's. Uh, I want to ask the nature of this machine. The circling generated in this style appeared in you as a brilliant. So he's talking to the, the the light as a brilliant reflection, and when my eyes had dwelled on it a while, it seemed 
that there was painted deep within an image of ourselves in its own color. So what he can make out in this, in these rings of light is an image of us. Mm-hmm. I know this is probably not what he, well, no, it is what he meant, but I love the color part in its own color. It's not just he sees it himself and everyone, you know, shades of, of himself and everyone, but he, but as they are in, I see your true colors, and that's how why I love you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. No. Add that to the pile of Dante commentary. No, but all the all the nuances. You know what I mean? Not just just like looking in a mirror, but seeing every part of yourself, the nuances of your soul, of your memories, of your feelings. You know. Well, it's be- yeah, it's because he's gone to the place from which everything has emerged. This is what I meant a while ago about how we thought he was traveling away from Earth, away from the center, but he's found the center of everything. Mm-hmm. He's, he's actually been traveling the whole time since the very first page of the Inferno. Towards himself. Towards himself and towards everything, towards the center of everything. Mm-hmm. It's as if the whole time he's been on this giant spinning wheel, and now he's in the middle. And he sees us. He sees an image of us. And then he says for a few lines, he says... Like geometers who tried to square the circle, I'm paraphrasing, I tried to understand how our image fit into the circle. And then he says, this would have exceeded my own wing's ambit, had not a sudden brilliance burst through my mind, bringing all that I wished for along with it. So he's narrating, I don't know what is this, his brain explodes, he has some kind of flash. An epiphany of the greatest... Degree. (laughs) That he he doesn't describe. It's left undescribed, unnarrated. But that's how epiphanies are. Sometimes you have these epiphanies. You could never put them into words. You could never describe them to other people. You just know that you suddenly understand something about existence and you feel infinitely uplifted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The last four lines of the whole poem. Here my high fantasy's power declined. But, like a wheel whose motion never jars. My will and desire now were turned in kind by the love that moves the sun and other stars. He goes from exile into being completely into receiving the most amazing homecoming, right? Cosmic homecoming. Cosmic homecoming. He's being welcomed home into everything, (laughs) into the entire thing. Not just Florence, but he gets to be home in everything. In God, in space, all people, Beatrice. Why is it love that moves the sun and other stars? Is this just one of those metaphors? God is love, so he really means God, but he's saying love. I suspect there's an argument being made here that the energy that fuels the cosmos is an emotional energy. Mm. But I don't know how to talk about this, A, because I don't know, and B, because it it sounds woo-woo and new-agey. It does, but if you had to explain what makes the world turn, (laughs) you know what I mean? Would you call it love? I mean, a physicist wouldn't. What caused the Big Bang? Love is not on their, their list of answers. No, that's true, but if you had to speak from your own experience, you know, from your own point of reference, there's no greater motivator than, um, there's many motivators, there's fear, you know, greed and whatnot, but love is 
arguably the greatest motivator in your own life, wouldn't you say? Or the desire for love, the need to love or be loved. I certainly would. But does it move inanimate objects like stars? Well, this is this is his his wishful thinking, well, which I find beautiful. Wait a minute. You don't think he means what he says? Mm, I, I do, but I'm sure he's not 100% certain of it. He's creating his most ideal vision, right? He's imagining his most ideal vision. Yeah. And and I'm absolutely crazy about the fact that he makes love the great... Force. Force, yeah, force. It's interesting that you say from our own personal references, love is the center of the universe. Love is the divine force. Love is the prime mover. Yeah. And if you if you believe that the universe was created by any kind of creator, mm-hmm. anthropomorphized or not, mm-hmm. any kind of will, mm-hmm. I suppose, what other motive could this will have had other than love? Yeah, and why did Dante, as the creator of the co- Divine Comedy, why did he create it? Right, yeah, why, does, why do artists create art? Yeah, in his specific case, it was Beatrice. I'm very taken by this vision of oneness in which we are all seen. I know, I still, of... I still feel like we shouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> Do you want to attempt to close by saying what this poem means to you in your soul? <sighs> no. <laughs> it's changed you, I can tell. It's changed your life. Just say before you attempt this how inadequate your answer will be. It'll be like the babblings of an infant. It'll be like a half-remembered dream. It'll be like melting snow. We understand that spiritual transformations in the wake of art cannot be fully described, but do your best. (laughs) I'll try to do my best, too, and I'm sure mine will be way worse than yours. Oh, dear. I'm honestly speechless. You don't have to copy Dante that much. (laughs) I know, right? But I am. I know I've been talking a lot about homecomings, but I feel like I came home to something. Some kind of, I don't know, some kind of huge... I've come home to everything, (laughs) in a way, just like he does at the end. I honestly feel like I had the same vision as he did, as the fictional pilgrim had. You mean because he narrated it for you so well? Yeah, and it doesn't feel like I had a secondary experience at all. I, so many things I've hoped for myself were true, you know, that I've suspected in I don't know, my subconscious, I guess, have been so validated. You know, I I feel like, um, I, I don't know. He's just, Dante has become like a real friend to me. He feels like an actual friend, like a companion. Hmm. Um, who's guided me through all of these worlds. And, but more than that, through not those fictional worlds, but through my own life. He's become a... A real present. I, I don't know. I know it's it's a cliche to say that writers are your friends, or a book is like your your friend. <laughs> but I really, I mean it in a, like an actual way. He's a real he's a real human being that has spoken to my deepest humanity. Yeah, and that that communication feels the fact that it can transcend time and place. I don't know what it's proof of, but it feels like proof of some eternal love of some kind, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The fact that that's possible. I mean, who am I to... I know. 
Twitter hunting. I'm just uh, you're Claire. I'm just a mom living in Provo. Was hoping for an art studio <laughs> or creative space. <laughs> you know what I mean? His voice reached me, and it was meant to. That's why you wrote it. Well, you're not just um. I mean, the center of the universe, the eternal light. The rose, the cosmic rose, contains almost nothing but moms from Provo. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's heaven. True. <laughs> That's that. I'm sorry. I, I have no idea how to talk about this, so. It's good. Ineffability trope you're copying from Dante. I'm, uh, another thing I was reading recently was that little short story, The Library of Babel by Borges. Have you ever read that? I did. It was very weird. <laughs> it's this kind of allegorical, tiny short story, this cosmic thought experiment in which there's a library that literally goes on forever. So much math. And yeah, it's very mathematical. There are books. Most of them are nonsense because the alphabet has just been randomized in all of them. Literally every combination of the letters that can be made is made over and over and over again in these books. And the people who walk the halls of this library search for words. They search for some kind of sense. They open a book and hope that they will be spoken to in language that they can understand. And they grab onto, like, I can't remember the exact phrase, it's something about pyramids, but they grab onto like seven words in a row that make semantic sense and feel transformed and nourished hmm. and are given the strength to keep going forever. You know, one little half sentence at a time. Out of context, I mean, these sentences don't really mean anything, they just are grammatically coherent. Scraps, scraps of scraps these people are holding on to. On one hand, it's a kind of bleak vision. Well, the universe is endless and mostly nonsensical and mostly barren and mostly cold. But every once in a while, these people find meaning and this meaning sustains them. Now, our, our situation... So if that is even... If, 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 those, if scraps of scraps are enough, look at what we have. You could say, yeah, the universe is endless. The cosmos go on forever. Um, you could, you could, people do even say there is no God. Uh, nobody put us here but random math. But we have Dante. You know what I mean? We, we're not uh, rubbing our hands over the brief coals of a half a sentence. We have something so sublimely beautiful as the Divine Comedy. We are so. Uh, lucky isn't the word, spoiled isn't the word. I don't, again, I'm not going to claim that this is proof of something, but it's a gift. I don't know if, if I'm not saying that there is or is not a giver, but it's a gift. Dante is a gift. Mm -hmm. And what are gifts? They're objects of love. So I'm, I'm kind of convinced that there is love out there somewhere in the universe. Yeah. And it, one of its gifts is, is the divine comedy. Last words, hour number 30. Uh, yeah, I'm just incredibly grateful that he that he worked so hard, that he explored the farthest reaches of his imagination to the point of, you know, defeating <laughs> himself to, to bring us this, as you said, gift. He knew, he suspected that it might reach people one day who will refer to his time as ancient, and that has happened. 
And sometimes you can see things come full circle, and it's just magical. Circles. Circles. <laughs> Circles, man. <laughs> God is a circle. And you know what? What's more of a circle than a mother nursing a baby? It's literally a circle she's forming. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I'm serious. That's true. You're so right. Holding just, the infant, it's, it's the ultimate circle. I just feel like someone has to shut us up or we never will. <laughs> that is a good image to end on. The nursing mm. circular eternal mother-child love bond. If that's not God, I don't know what is. Let's just say that. Yes. <laughs> For today's poem of the day, I wanted to read this poem I really love by James Dickey called The Heaven of Animals. It is about animals, but not really. These animals clearly reflect a lot of our own human traits and a lot of the traits that we see emphasized by the spirits in Dante's heaven. So this is The Heaven of Animals by James Dickey. Here they are, the soft eyes open. If they have lived in a wood, it is a wood. If they have lived on plains, it is grass rolling under their feet forever. Having no souls, they have come anyway, beyond their knowing. Their instincts wholly bloom and they rise, the soft eyes open. To match them, the landscape flowers, outdoing, desperately outdoing what is required. The richest wood, the deepest field. For some of these, it could not be the place it is without blood. These hunt, as they have done, but with claws and teeth grown perfect, more deadly than they can believe. They stalk more silently, and crouch on the limbs of trees, and their descent upon the bright backs of their prey may take years in a sovereign floating of joy. And those that are hunted know this as their life, their reward, to walk under such trees in full knowledge of what is in glory above them, and to feel no fear, but acceptance, compliance, fulfilling themselves without pain at the cycle's center. They tremble, they walk under the tree, they fall, they are torn, they rise. They walk again. That's it for now. As you can tell, Claire and I have been quite transformed by our experience with Dante, and I hope you enjoyed our very insufficient, very casual, very piecemeal, and very partial commentary and attempt to express our joy over this poem. Don't know what we'll be reading next, but something good, no doubt, and soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening.